longer if you keep talking. Is the tape incriminating or not? It's a simple question. Oh, 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 oh. There's nothing simple about it. Nothing simple about anything you've told me. You don't believe this, do you? I believe you, but that's not the problem. You don't need me to believe you. You need them to believe you. Them? Them. With a capital T. Your priest, your postman, your teacher, the world at large. They won't believe any of this. That's why we made the tape. Oh, that's easy to bury. Easy. He admits it. You heard it. He admits culpability. You're being naive, Nancy. Most people, they're not wired like me and you, okay? They don't spend their lives trying to get a look at what's behind the curtain. They like the curtain. It provides them stability, comfort, definition. This, this would open the curtain and open the curtain behind that curtain, okay? So the minute someone with an ounce of authority calls bullshit, everyone will nod their heads and say, see, ha, I knew it. It was bullshit. That is, it can even get their attention at all. So you're saying we did all of this for nothing? I'm saying I'm thinking. Oof. Oof. This is ridiculous. How many times have you sat down to watch a documentary, assuming it would be good, taken for granted some level of journalistic integrity, along with the checks and balances performed to finally bring it into your home? With that in mind, it can be easy to let our guard down, to be taken away like a feather in the breeze and oblivious to any omission. Assume everything that's being put forth is the truth and that surely no one would be there to take advantage of such naivety. At times, documentaries can convince folk to form a movement involving Hollywood and commoners alike. And on the flip side, of orca whales released from the bathtubs they're confined to, you get satanic child murderers released from their life and death row sentences, portraying them, and of course their supporters, as the real victims. Tonight we're reviewing the 1996 documentary produced by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky titled Paradise Lost, The Child Murders of Robin Hood Hills. The movement it sparked and the high profiles involved. Tonight we're looking at the West Memphis Three. 5th of May 1993. It's a full moon. Three second grade Boy Scouts Michael Moore, Christopher Byers and Stevie Branch rode their bikes into a wooded area off a highway of West Memphis, Arkansas, where they'd be beaten tortured, tied up, murdered, and dumped in a creek where only one of the eight-year-old boys would die early of blood loss, while the other two would take hours, eventually passing from multiple injuries plus drowning in the early a.m. of May 6. In the days following the murders, local junior parole officers brought the name of 18-year-old Damien Eccles to the police and while police would interview said suspect, it wasn't for almost a month after the homicides and hundreds of other interviews did they speak to and with his father's permission, 17-year-old 
Jesse Miscally Jr., who would, with his father's written consent, be administered and fail a polygraph test, later confessing, leading police to arrest himself, 16-year-old Jason Baldwin and 18-year-old Damien Eccles. Before the recorded police confession, Jesse's rights were read to him for the third time that day and his time at the station totaled four and a half hours. In 1994, all three teenagers were trialled in separate parts of the state and found guilty of the murders by juries mostly under 30 years old. This was an open and shut case. What happened to the little boys could never be undone. In the words of one of the victim's mothers, this changes nothing. Despite all the noise and clutter surrounding the case, any parent's worst nightmare at least had some closure with law enforcement, local community and the courts having found and sentenced the three teens responsible for the deaths of the three young boys. During the trials, what would end up being a two and a half hour documentary was filmed and released over two years later in 1996 on HBO. After it aired, we learned it was a poor attempt to cast doubt on the guilt of the three teenagers. Yet in trans viewers believing a backwater town stuck in their religious ways had held a modern day witch trial, charging and reaching a guilty verdict of the three teens simply because they wore black clothing, listened to heavy metal music and practiced wicker. Those wet behind the ears would form a movement and after 18 years, Hollywood endorsements, a second documentary and during the filming of the third in 2011, the three responsible were released from prison and are now overwhelmingly seen as innocent, having unjustifiably lost 18 years of their life due to a community under the spell of the satanic panic. These three films are not good. They're not well edited, not cleverly shot. They convince no viewer of guilt or innocence and simply take advantage of and amplify pre-existing bias, intolerance and bigotry. One of the first rules of crafting a narrative, it's often not about what's said, but what's not said and we'll get to what was left out. But it was what was left in that's the real kicker. So, let's capture us a freak. Everybody in the town and in the courtroom and on the jury are all blinded by their fantasies about satanic cults. My body is changing, but that medicine is making it happen a lot more slowly than normal. I'm outgrowing my skin. I'm eating packs of sugar and Kool-Aid to give my body the extra energy it needs to make its change. Soon people will know I am the Christ just by looking at me. Damien Eccles. Who was born Michael Wayne Hutchison. So, Eccles, the surname of a stepfather who was a swell fella, I'm sure. And Damien, which has no biblical ties whatsoever and only associated with the occult since being the name of the Antichrist in the Omen movies. Originally released in the 70s and remade half a dozen times since then. 
Also Father Damien, the priest who had become possessed in the film The Exorcist. It's not biblical, it's not historical, it's just the 70s. But if we're going to play dress-ups, which we'll be doing a lot for this podcast, well, I'll let the man formerly known as Michael Wayne Hutchison explain it for himself. Please state your name for the court. Damien Wayne Eccles. Why did you change your name? I was very involved in the Catholic Church, and we were going over different names of the saints. St. Michael's was where I went to church at. And we heard about this uh, guy from the Hawaiian Hawaiian Islands, um, Father Damien, that took care of lepers until he finally caught the disease itself and died. Was that the reason you chose Damien as your first name? Yes, it is. Did the choosing of the name Damien have anything to do with any type of horror movies, Satanism, cultism, any of that nature? Nothing whatsoever. Now, Michael Wayne Hutchison had a history of severe mental illness to the point of being hospitalised and furthermore having his own parents tell his case manager that they were frightened of him and what he can do, not only to them, but to other children that reside in the home. He was suicidal, homicidal, had manic depression, was schizophrenic and sociopathic, all by his own admission. During the trials, Damien had been caught in lies on the stand. Some lies to do with his knowledge of Alistair Crowley, some to do with all of his alibis. Yes, you heard that right. Plural. All of his alibis fell apart, as did Miss Kelly's, and Baldwin didn't even attempt. The guy who's normally tasked with babysitting his younger siblings after school as his mum works late, no alibi. The first time Satanism was brought up was by Damien to the police, and in said police interview, he knew details about the murders that weren't public knowledge by that stage. Jesse Miss Kelly would say that Damien had been trying to talk to him after the murders, asking him, why'd you head off like that? Trying to get him on his own. He knew Miss Kelly was going to talk. He knew he was only half in. He knew he hadn't gone full satanic. That he'd stopped Baldwin as Baldwin approached one victim, Michael Moore, stopping him, quote, doing him like you did the other one. And in the police interview... Damien stated that he felt it was probably one person, because if it were more than one person, somebody would probably tell about it sooner or later. He said that there would be a fear of squealing by one of the persons in the act if it were more than one person. They were spotted there, covered in mud, dirty. A witness described them as on the stand. Kind of muddy by another. The Hollingsworth family were driving past the area that night and saw Damien and they said his missus, Dominie Tear, who Baldwin could well be mistaken for at night from behind. Which matches Miss Kelly's confessed early departure. So there's three teens drinking in a patch of woods that's really not that big 
then three boys go out there on their bikes. Must be a pretty popular spot, right? But no one else goes out there. On the night of a full moon. Well, in Eccles' police interview, he says the killer probably knew the kids and even invited the kids into the woods. Not only that, but Miss Kelly was also noted to police as knocking about with cousins of victim Michael Moore. The boy Miss Kelly himself tackled and beat up when Michael tried to escape again by his own admission. Again, matching Michael Moore's body found further away from the other two boys. We see the Miss Kelly family in the films. Well, their neighbour, Buddy Lucas, heads over to the Miss Kelly's the evening of May 5th, the night it happened, sharing some barbecue chicken and spots Jesse Jr. heading off with another kid. Next morning, Buddy heads over there again, catches up with Jesse, and Jesse confesses to him, cries, hands him the shoes he wore. Man, take the shoes, I don't want to see him no more. When Buddy Lucas tells the police, he, of his own accord, uses the term sacrifices. He, meaning Jesse, he was with Jason and Damien when they sacrificed them little kids. We heard a couple of boys that Jason and Damien killed. He would also say that Jesse was going to come to the police willingly. Something Jesse never did, police would go to him because they knew he hung about with potential suspect Damien Eccles. Much like their alibis, both Miss Kelly and Eccles failed their polygraphs while Baldwin refused to take one. And that'll do for what was omitted in the documentaries. There's more. There's so much more. But we'll be here all night. And much like these documentaries, we're not here to discuss the guilt of the three teenagers. Instead, let's check out what was left in the films and shed some light on the real reason this film and its sequels made the waves that it did. Starting with the location. West Memphis. Now in the opening shots of the documentaries, the ones that aren't of nuanced and cultured dead kids, we're constantly brought back to this overhead shot of a highway. There's a wooded area on either side and a servo. So that's where it all happened. And through these episodes, the camera work is telling you this is backwoods. Redneck, middle of nowhere. Yet simultaneously has a highway intersection running through it. West of where? Memphis. And this highway intersection, so east is Memphis. You may not have heard of the small town of Memphis or the river there the one that splits the US in half but civilization and culture they don't just sprout up around waterways so we'll leave the birthplace of Seoul staying west over the Mississippi along the highway 
and driving past the Backwater Airport will take you to the Arkansas capital and turning north at the Backwoods Highway intersection just up from the Backwoods Casino. You know, I just don't want folk getting lost in the backwater town of West Memphis. So if you can see the casino and the lights of Memphis, if you can hear the current from the world's fourth largest river, then you'll probably be okay. But anyway, north leads you to St. Louis. And it's so backwater over the bridge from Memphis that even the local school kids get up on the stand and tell lies about Damien. That's right, even the local school kids are in on it. Because who hates rebellious, heavy metal music more than 90s parents, 90s lawyers, and 90s cops? You guessed it, 90s teenagers. Arkansas heavy metal tour dates for the early 90s, they say otherwise, but even then, if you're in West Memphis, you can drive the two hours to the Arkansas capital, or you can drive over the bridge to Memphis. Moving on, Baldwin's cellmate says, I asked him once, did you do it? He said, no. I asked him the next day, he said, yeah, yeah, I did it. The witness gave details, under oath, on the stand. The stand, by the way, 110 miles away. Hicktown, churches, Confederate flags, all the rest of it. The court, the jury, the judges, 110 miles away from the bridge to Memphis. Which they tell you in the first film. Remember, this is all stuff that's left in the films. Okay, so just a quick rundown of the films. In the first, Miss Kelly withdraws his confession and they go with this low IQ angle, which is nonsense, but more on that later. They claim his confession was coercion and police intimidation because he's an easy target and they go after him because he knew Eccles. And the police just didn't like Eccles. And Baldwin, I guess, by association. They tried to tell you it's a hick town caught up in the satanic panic and end up making one of the stepfathers of the victims out to be the real culprit. They try to say the victims were carried into the woods. It's merely a disposal site. Again, more nonsense, which we get into. In the second one, they claim a mark on one of the boys' foreheads is a bite mark. It's not. And they chase Mark Byers around some more. Eventually, the ruckus this causes, they get out, and 99% of where you look, innocent, innocent. The teenagers are innocent. The police don't want to catch the real killer. The real killer's one of the stepdads. We'll get into all that and why it's such a big deal. But for now, back to what was included in the films. The stepmother doesn't believe his innocence. Miss Kelly's stepmother 
lived with him, yet doesn't believe his innocence. Knew he headed off with another boy the evening of May 5th, just before Buddy Lucas came over sharing a hot chook. And they show her, in the films, clearly not buying the innocence narrative. And the lawyer talks about the IQ. One of the first scenes in the movie after the intro is Jesse Miss Kelly's lawyer telling him that if he scores low enough on an IQ test, they can't give him the death penalty. Then there's Baldwin's alibi. So none of the defendants have an alibi that stood up in court. And Baldwin's lawyer tells us in the first movie they wouldn't even provide one. Paraphrasing here, but he wouldn't give the prosecutors a chance to dismantle it. Five of the six original defence attorneys took off after the sentencing. They tell you that in the second film. They accepted defeat. They didn't fight, for the police intimidated, slack-jaw-hated, black-clothed and jaded teenagers on death row. Five, six of them. And the viewers left to make up their own minds about all of that. And then there's the Bojangles man. That the film tells you is nothing out of the ordinary. West Memphis is a shithole. That's what they tell you the entire way through these documentaries. In every shot they take, they are better than the inhabitants of West Memphis. Believe our story, and you can be too. They focus on what a bad place it is to live. Is it so out of the realm of possibilities that Mr Bojangles is here to confirm that? Is it so hard to believe the film when they tell you West Memphis is the type of place where random fellas stumble into restaurants covered in blood on Wednesday nights so inebriated they shit themselves in the wrong bathroom? Because that's what happened. That's who Mr. Bojangles is. Because that's what you do after you single-handedly murder three little boys. Make yourself as known as possible. On top of that, he had one arm in a cast. Which easily explains why there were three different distinct knots tied on the three different boys. And he was black. Because we know they're the only people, 90s cops, 90s lawyers, and pearl-clutching rednecks over the bridge from the birthplace of Seoul would frame for murder other than the black guy. It's those gosh darn teenagers wearing black. I knew from when I was real small that people were going to know who I was. I always had that feeling. I just never knew how they were going to learn. I kind of enjoy it because now even after I die, people are going to remember me forever. They're going to talk about me for years. People in West Memphis will tell their kids stories. It'll be like, sort of like I'm the West Memphis boogeyman. Little kids will be looking under their bed before they go to bed. Damien might be under there. 
This is what they closed the first film out with. And viewers were left to make up their own decisions. Or, they could remain undecided. And say, hey, I simply don't know enough about this case. There were cameras in the courtroom. May I also access the court documents? I don't believe I know enough. After a two and a half hour pat on the back. They would go on, in the films, to describe the lake knife. The defence team, the defence team, in the second episode, describes the knife found in the lake behind Baldwin's house. A knife that I, and I assume the jury, perceive as the murder weapon. No precision, no accuracy, no skill required. Blade on one side, serrated top on the other. An act of anger, they say. Then they show you a flip knife and point the finger at the buyer's stepfather. And one last thing that was left in the films was the absence of Michael Moore's mum and dad. Who you say? Who indeed? They kind of lack the on-screen impact that the buyer's stepdad had. I'm guessing they also lack the background of the other two sets of parents. Well, why would I be talking about the parents that barely got any screen time? Why would I be drawing attention to the most normal functioning parents in the entire saga? I mean, it's such an isolated, backwater, redneck town over the bridge from Memphis across the Mississippi with the highway intersection, casino and airport, wouldn't you want to hear from the most reasonable parents there? As Byers, he really plays up his character. He's got the slack jaw, he's got the revolver, the anger. There's Stevie's mum. They look like punks, you gotta leave that in. But where's the third kid's mum and dad? They had some in the first episode just enough to see they wouldn't draw an audience after that you just don't see or hear from the most reasonable and functioning adults involved my name's Todd Moore my son was Michael Moore he was murdered along with Christopher Byers and Stephen Branch May 5th 1993 cannot describe the pain that my family has went through. You know, they didn't just kill my son. They killed part of me. They killed a part of my wife and her daughter. You know, these are not boys that murdered our kids. You know, they stopped being boys, you know, when they planned this. I'm Diane Moore, Michael Moore's mother. Last week and flash market, the Eccles man was in there, staring me down. Like it was my fault that I had a child that his child could murder. We said at Big Star, we seen the people that are supporting these people that look at us like we're scum and these other people are just 
the greatest thing that they've ever known. And now they want to have them all just dressed up and act like little choir boys in court. And here you go. He didn't do anything wrong. My son didn't do anything wrong. He's just a boy. Deafening silence after that. Same goes for Damien's father, Hutchison. No fresh footage after the first one. Guy's son gets put on death row. Doesn't want nothing to do with the documentaries trying to release him. Wasn't even his kids. These producers were so thrilled to show dead on a riverbank. These producers, by the way, very fond of filming rednecks. Have quite the history of point and laugh, step right up, five bucks to the freak show. Very early circus promoter type stuff. But oh, no, no, no. They'd go on to produce Metallica's documentary. Some kind of monster. A title they must have been up all night working on. And I'm sure they had our best interest at heart when they omitted Exhibit 500. Well, ignoring their previous look at the freak show work, let's look at an external media piece, independent, air quotes, of this documentary, yet still takes a substantial amount of runtime towards the end of the second instalment. The Leaser episode. Mark Byers tells his side, while supporters and mothers of the teens tell their side. Well, I'd be very keen to hear the arguments Mark would bring forth without the interference of HBO, and it's gone. It's gone. It didn't air. Dang. Well, why didn't they air the Lisa episode? I mean, this is Lisa we're talking. You know the show Lisa, don't you? So what comes to my mind when I think of midday talk shows? There's Oprah Winfrey and Jerry Springer and Lisa. But they didn't air it. Must have had other more pressing issues to discuss, more head-turning topics than police intimidation, life and death row teenagers, satanic child murders, a first documentary that caught Metallica's interest, first time Metallica lent their music out, and of course, the community cover-up by the small town of 28,000 people. But it didn't air. Golly. Crikey. Heavens to Betsy. As the viewer of the second instalment, I'm just left to assume Byers set fire to the stage. That's what he loves doing on camera so much. Maybe they enticed him with a few pumpkins and he just couldn't resist blowing some fucking holes in them. I mean, either that or the audience had a wide array of coloured clothing on. A sea of tie-dyed rednecks, bewitched, bedazzled, spellbound, into taken buyer's side without the ever-so-clever editing of the original trilogy. 
Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Am I right, fellas? So what do you hope happens when this wraps up? I hope everyone can see this for the joke that it really is. Sounds like fireworks, doesn't it? Really grips your attention. Not my sound effects, by the way. These are in the films. The one-shots are, anyway. And it worked for them. Maybe it'll work here. I don't think you're supposed to tell your audience about it. That ruins the illusion. Now, I didn't watch the third episode for a long time, and I wasn't intending to. There's enough in the first two to know that it's bollocks. I couldn't find it on YouTube like the other two, and I certainly wasn't going to pay for it. But it ended up falling into my hands, so I gave it a go. Must have been that wicked power of three that compelled me so. Now, it took two years to edit the first one. Third one took under a month. September 11. 10 year anniversary of all dates it was released after the August Alford plea nominated for an Academy Award this one so you might be thinking gee must have really honed their craft through the years and put forth some truly compelling propaganda well prepare to be disappointed because it's even more graphic with the child victims dubbed over with cool Metallica music of course because remember this is cool dead kids this is a cool narrative this is HBO I mean do we really have to wonder why the parents didn't want a damn thing to do with it after the first episode After the glorification of dead kids, if you can, look away during the intros. You're not going to miss some compelling revelation. When all there was left to give these three boys was respect and justice, these two creeps humiliated and exploited them and those closest to them that had their worlds shattered by the events that night. In the third one, all the information is there. The detective who oversaw it from the beginning. Well, he's here in the third, and he gives a little bit of ground. He extends an olive branch. Says the 11 out of 10 comment he made, maybe he'd do it different if he could do it over. So, an olive branch. Okay, great. But then... Then doesn't he get a little bit big for his boots in the step-right-up presence of HBO? When he says he'd like some of these public figures who speak publicly about this, in pre-Twitter days, by the way, that he'd like to sit down with them and explain the facts and what really happened. 
a naughty boy indeed. And don't the filmmakers let him know about it. They raise their voice. They give him the lecture right before they invite the public to look into the case. They say in response, I'm paraphrasing, all the evidence is here for anyone that wants to look. But the consumer doesn't want to look. They like the curtain. Consume, obey. Wait for next product to consume. There's some cameos in this one. Johnny Depp. Pearl Jam make an appearance. Even Henry Rollins. Even Big Henners is there. I mean, someone's got to be the moral police, right? And they admit they're not there because of broken whiskey bottles, seven confessions and dead dogs. But because they sunk their time into this. They got their six-hour wristy in front of the TV. It left them clapping like a seal and they came out the other side raising only one question. How can I make this about me? Because they can relate to the guy who in this very form of entertainment moments earlier has locals telling the filmmakers I saw him eating the hind leg of a dog. Literally nobody else to relate to. Not a single other boy. Or three. Not three other boys. If only there were three other boys that celebrities and common folk could have possibly related to outside of doggone it Damien and his fuckhead mates. And the Dixie Chicks are there too. Celebrities out in force to lecture the plebs about science. My oh my, how the times have changed. Winona Ryder would also get on board in the end, but she's not in this one. So what else happened? It was the turtles. Right, so get ready for this one. All the wounds on the boys. They don't match the knife found in the lake behind Baldwin's house. No. It was the turtles. Because that hill there, where it all happened, known as Turtle Hill. Turtle Hill. At least the filmmakers told me it was. Two films, and 18 years in, never mentioned Turtle Hill. I haven't spoken to the locals to verify it yet, but we don't need to. We don't need to. The Travelling Circus, brought to you by HBO, and their clown, playing at show and tell, are here to assure us that it was the turtles from Turtle Hill. And the crabs. And the possums. Or maybe, just maybe, it was Occam's Razor. 
Maybe it was Occam's razor that caused the wounds. Although maybe, maybe it was the stepdad. No, not the buyer's fella from the previous two instalments. You know, the first two episodes, yeah? With the bite marks. You remember the bite marks? Not the guy who was abused by a mob of actual conspiracy theorists, but the other one, who was barely in it. A line or two of dialogue in mourning, though in this one they used cutting room floor footage from 18 years ago to paint this guy as the killer. Allow, dear viewer, for the puppet master to pull your strings once again and send you on yet another wild goose chase, disguising their admission of being dead wrong the first two times. 18 years they had this footage and not want to leave any stone unturned, exhausting every last lead, a story they had to tell so badly they waited until and only after Stevie Branch's stepdad told the Dixie Chicks to go fuck themselves. 18 years using footage from an interview we know they edited. The Just Look At Him interview. And urgently propelling his admittingly colourful past. Could you ask those folks inside to step out for just a second? Uh, I know that I've talked to, to each of you, if not directly, indirectly. We need to be very, very careful about who we talk to with regard to the media involved in this case. There are several members of the media who apparently have no ethics and have decided that they're going to do everything they can to dig up mud and sling mud. It's not going to do anything but hurt Jesse and his chances of receiving a fair trial. You, as, as friends of Jesse and relatives of Jesse, are prime targets for these members of the press. And if we just remember the one rule is don't talk to anybody, then we won't have to worry about it. Does that make sense? As early as 1599, the Elizabethan pamphleteer Thomas Nash had written, To draw on hounds to assent, to a red herring skin there is nothing comparable. From Wikipedia. The term was popularised in 1807 by English polemicist William Cobbett, who told a story of having used a strong-smelling smoked fish to divert and distract hounds from chasing a rabbit. To divert and distract hounds from chasing a rabbit. Why'd you get involved? Because I, I, I knew immediately, you know, when I, when I, when I first uh, started uh, to, uh, to get, you know, kind of familiarize myself with the case, I knew instantly that they were innocent. I knew instantly that they were wrongfully accused. And um, the more research I did and the more people I spoke to, um, it was absolutely apparent. Did you have anybody say to you, know, Johnny, go out on a limb on a thing like this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people. Like, what if they did it? You're going to look bad. There was that kind of thing, yeah. But I, I just knew. I just knew, you know. I, I, I... He just knew. He just knew. 
are just new, says Johnny Depp to Larry King. And as we sit here in 2022, time has shown that if there's one guy the public can trust, one Hollywood A-lister who has earned the right to scream from the rooftops, I am an excellent judge of character, it's Johnny Depp. Going into this without the actual story, I can imagine that the way Eccles speaks, both at 18 and now in his 40s, you know, he's he's on the talk shows. He's got the interviews. He was on the Duncan Trussell podcast. You can see how many would be charmed by him. Enough to say, nah, wasn't him. Can't be him. Well, if only we had an example of a charismatic murderer. Of someone who folk could look at and say, oh no, it couldn't possibly be him. He's too articulate and charismatic and, you know, he's really quite handsome. And trusting. So trusting, in fact, that the ladies feel safe riding in his Volkswagen. Well, how could he be so articulate and charismatic if he committed these murders? Yes. Good job. You're thinking like a moral, law-abiding citizen. Do you know who doesn't think like a moral, law-abiding citizen? Satanic child murderers. But I agree. I agree. Shouldn't he be like a bit weird? Shouldn't Damien Eccles be maybe a little bit like Jason Baldwin? The guy they show the least amount of in these episodes. The guy who in Miss Callie's many confessions has him being the one that cut the buyer's boy and approaches more to do the same thing. But speaking of Eccles' charisma, you know, what a coincidence it is that the ringleader in all of the murders that may as well have never taken place by the end of this. But the innocent guy, framed for being the ringleader of the fake murders, turns out to be the most charismatic of the three. It's him. With the Hollywood friends, the talk shows, the interviews, the large following since walking out of prison. What a coincidence that the weird fuckhead we barely hear a peep from in the documentaries, whose most memorable line was in the intro of the second one, him banging on about the buyer's dad in the most forced dialogue and shittiest acting I've ever seen. Almost like he was guided in what to say. He doesn't get the screen time upon release. What a coincidence that the guy who, in his own words, seven times over that we know of, didn't commit the murders firsthand. Who left in shock at what was happening and what he'd done, tackling the little more boy and beating him up. Throws up on the way home, having witnessed the murders, and ditches a whiskey bottle that ties them to the crime. Who confesses 
seven times over because in his own words, I want something done about it. Who refuses attendance at these little parties, celebrating their victory and superiority over the common folk of West Memphis. What a coincidence that the guy who seems to show some form of remorse and shame from the moment it all went down, who cried to Buddy Lucas, who cried in his room in the months between the murders and police confession, remember his stepmother, who goes out to the scene of the crime, sits down and cries some more, and ends up being diagnosed with PTSD and basically disappears. He doesn't want nothing to do with the saga anymore. What a coincidence. And speaking of Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. Let's talk about his IQ. Now if you thought the kayfabe ended with his wrestling matches, let's continue the dress ups and say Jesse is off limits. His IQ is 72. Down from 88 the year previous. But skipping over that, he is off limits. And the Damien Eccles, formerly known as Michael Wayne Hutchison, is different. So he's off limits too. And Baldwin. Just reasons. Okay, so the vulnerable... Rough, slow, and different. Are all off limits as per the nuance mob. Now, are you ready to play dress ups? Jesse Miskelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, Damian Eccles, I hope your master of the devil does take you soon. I want you to meet him real soon. And the day you die, I'm going to praise God. And I make you a promise. The day you die, every year on May 5th, I'm going to come to your graveside. I'm going to spit on you. I'm going to curse the day you were born. And I'm sure while I'm standing there, I'm going to have to have other bodily functions let go upon your grave. I promise you, as God is my witness, I'll visit all three of your graves. So if you've never watched the films before, if this is your first introduction to the case and you're there saying, well, hey, I agree with you. How could anyone believe this? I certainly wouldn't be fooled. There's got to be something else that would help sway my opinion. Well, here he is. I swore I'd stand at your grave and cuss it. Well, I'm doing it a little bit early. I'm going to bury you three bastards right here and send you to hell. You want to worship the devil? See him. I'm going to give you a farewell party. What do you think? You ready to die? Fire for fire. Death for death. This is the ditch that you killed him in. Do you remember? Burn, you son of a bitch. Burn. Burn. Go to hell. Burn. Stomp on your grave. I'll stomp on your grave. I'll stomp on your grave. Burn and go to hell. 
burn like you deserve to burn. Fact is, folk believe this, not because it was an astonishingly convincing and well-edited propaganda piece, no, but because they wanted to. Mark Byer, as awesome as he is, he's a catch-22. And the sad truth is, without him, the culprits would have most likely had their sentences carried out to the full extent by now. But because the producers, because these glorified circus promoters, with a history of announcing, hey, five bucks to the freak show, and an audience wanting to believe what was put forth by them, we've got this. Could viewers have been swayed without him? I don't think so. You got the churches in there, and the priest. He cannot be saved. He could not take the Bible. There's a confederate flag, yes, very good. Mother of a recently murdered son, remember? They look like punks. Of course, she'd be the last on the list of finding the real killer. Mother of a recently murdered eight-year-old son, but no. The teens wore black and churches. And there'll be no Metallica played in her presence. That's what she hates more than her own child being murdered. Could the viewers have been swayed with just that? Would they believe Miss Kelly's confession would be police intimidation without having already been hypnotised, dare I say, enchanted by Mark Byers? Nah. But hey, that's just my opinion. You tell me. Upon hearing the words of an eight-year-old boy's grieving mother, what do you think folk would need to say, hey now, this is about me. I'm the real victim here. When I went to work, you know, and, and they had um, caught the people that had done this, um, my boss at work, she, uh, she just thought it was great. You know, she was like, well, they caught those freaks that killed those kids. What a relief. Yeah, well, I mean, those were exact words. They caught those freaks. And I said, well, you know, they haven't even done the trial yet. What, what makes you think they did it? And she was like, well, look at them. Look at the way they dress. Of course they did it. Golly, I better stay in the house then, because it's not safe for me out there then. Everyone will pay because everyone is too stupid to open their eyes. This is the final times, and I am the new messiah. Wake up and smell the crud, faggots. I don't care whether you are saved or not, everyone pays a price. Damien Eccles And do you want to know how bad it got for buyers? Let's look at surface level. None of that pesky evidence outside of the documentaries. Let's keep it in the films. It was the second one where Byers said he's got the mob chasing him, telling him he did it, that he'd been in fights over it, that he'd lost teeth over it, which is weird considering the entire town was in on the cover-up. Those three animals took my baby from me and they took my wife from me. And I self-destructed 
And, buddy, I'm telling you about I got downright mean. The pain they've caused me, it cost me physically and mentally and all the fights and all that I got into because I went to looking for them and the bricks that hit me in the head and the knives that cut these scars on my face and the jerks that had the privilege of knocking teeth out of my mouth, well, that's caused them three animals that provoked me so to get into a violent rage like I had. And that's what it cost me, a whole set of teeth. But that's all right, because they're going to pay for it. We're left to assume these fights and beatings simply fell out of the sky. Or that folk travelled hours out of their way to come to little old West Memphis to give them a hiding. Hours out of their way. Super long. Bridge from Memphis, that one. I mean, what do you think it makes me feel like when I hear people say, Oh, I believe you killed Christopher. I believe you had something to do with killing Melissa. I can't tell you how it hurts. Man, it tears me apart. And going to a grocery store, go anywhere. I'm subject to walking into a fool and say that. Y'all been with me yeah. when people walk up and say, Don't I know you? Yeah. Wasn't you the baby killer on TV? Yeah. Well, you know, I've had an ignorant woman. She was a school teacher there in West Memphis. Taught Jesse Muskelly in his GED, you know, his alternative school. And this woman showed the movie Paradise Lost and talked about how that I was basically guilty for it and that the police and everything framed them three and there was no cult and Jesse Muskelly was a good loving boy and just such a kind person. And he's talking about this in the second film. Only the first had been out by this stage. It was the second film where they really focus in on him. His background, his wife's obvious OD. There are several members of the media who apparently have no ethics and have decided that they're gonna do everything they can to dig up mud and sling mud. It's not gonna do anything but hurt Jesse and his chances of receiving a fair trial. Remember when they were filming by Christopher Byers' grave? You know, when they're placing a tree on their son's grave at Christmas. There's the shot of the pentagram shadow on Byer's forehead. I wonder if that's the moment that celebrities who spend their lifetime behind a camera knew he was guilty. So now he's lost his wife. His son's been murdered. This mob's gaining, blaming him with big names trying to release those responsible. Now the film crew and a prejudiced audience, dazed by the satanic panic, really turn on him. Pressuring him into a confession because it aligns with their preconceived and narrow-minded worldview. Despite his passing of a polygraph, HBO chooses to near-on close the second film with. And he keeps coming back for more. When the other parents rightfully don't want a damn thing to do with this vomit. Byers is still there, wearing a badge with his dead son's face on it, standing in the middle of a circle jerk and says, Fuck you. We caught the real killers. And now you're here trying to free him. Spellbound by a fairy tale of him, while the producers and supporters scream at him 
Why don't you just stay down? Until he did. And only then did the mob finally realise how ridiculous it was to accuse buyers. Only then did the mob finally, and only somewhat, catch up to the original jury of 1994. But if that's not enough for you, let's carry on LARPing and pretend everything I've just said is the first time you've heard it, and again, only going by what was included in the films. People are placing a lot of emphasis on on Mark and could he have been a suspect? And there again, it's the same question that was asked to me, did we pick Damien up because he looked weird? Well, are we accusing Mark Byers because he has a ponytail and looks a little weird and he's a big kind of guy and, and is kind of boisterous? I mean, is that why he's labeled as uh, having something to do with it? No. You have to look at the facts, and the facts are the three that we arrested and that have been convicted are the ones that did this. Mark Byers didn't have anything to do with this crime at all. Left in. Left in the films. Everybody that watched the films heard those words, yet it fell on the deaf ears of actual conspiracy theorists who LARPed their way to a modern-day witch trial, held by a nuanced mob, because they were right and buyers was different and were warned the entire time of exactly what they were doing. I hate to say it, but I'm going to take what I assume is the filmmaker's perspective on this. They all but held the viewer's hand and whispered in their ear, this is a lie. There's only so much responsibility I can place on Joe Berlinger, Bruce Sinofsky, and HBO. It's not their fault their audience is packed full of dumb cunts. Somebody else had a similar take once, but I couldn't find it. I really wanted to find this Charles Manson interview, this answer to a question where he says that he didn't kill anybody. And the interviewer tells him that he told folk to murder someone. And he says, well, hey, go outside. First person you see on the street, stab them. And when you get to court, tell them Charlie sent you. But I couldn't find it. But in my searching... I did find this little nugget. Anybody that knows the garbage cans in the alley understands Hollywood. Fascinating. What other insights you got for us, mate? All right, that's enough out of you. But it's not the filmmaker's fault. And it's not HBO's fault. It's not their fault. 
No fact checkers could independently verify the information put forth. Not their fault. There was default trust amongst the nuanced and sceptical community. Take the second borderline mockumentary. Midway through, I kid you not. They're trying to do this Friday the 13th knockoff. This is after they actually suggest exhuming Melissa Byers to get her dental imprints. So, with the Metallica music in the background, of course, it's black and white. This is the second one. He's got the machete out. He's charging through the bush. He's running up that hill. Running up Turtle Hill. Metallica's going. And then the beat drops. Tell me what you see when the beat drops. This is an action movie. Complete with actors... A courtroom drama, a damn snuff film, with shock value disguised, not well, as a documentary. It is satanic. But anyway. Moving on. I want to read for you now some scripture. No, not really. Just some lyrics from a song by heavy metal band Disturbed. Released the same year as the Teenagers, the song's called Three. You might know this song yourself if you're one of those heavy metal minorities. Anyway. I was a boy who had to live his own way. I never fit into the model they had designed. I chose a path less taken. I stood when others who had nothing felt the same. We got our stares from passers-by. Our dark attire seemed to frighten people away. Now, now we know which of the two major personalities in this trilogy this song's written for. And when the three young boys died, they pointed fingers and entangled us in a lie. Later in the song, won't someone try to bring the truth to light? Won't anybody open up their eyes? 
Can't anybody see through their disguise? Won't they believe we didn't take their lives? But this is all old news, right? Almost 30 years ago now. Those responsible were released over a decade ago. Why do I care now? That Disturbed song, 2011. Haven't you seen how disposable news cycles have become? How rabid we've become, foaming at the jowls awaiting the next hour of hate, which the reaction to this documentary assures us is only a modern performance? This has no impact on today's society. Care less. Be more stoic about the child murders and the rot that followed and just look away. Just watch Netflix instead. Well, in the show, starring Winona Ryder, where the buyer's boy goes missing, on his bike, in the woods of an actual sleepy backwater town, where Michael goes searching, with his buddy Lucas, and even Stevie's in it too. And you might be thinking, what I was thinking. This is a bit of a stretch. It's just a few names. Don't get caught up in your confirmation bias. Well, then season four rolls round. And Eddie. No, not Eddie Vedder, the rock star of Pearl Jam. But Eddie Munson. Which I believe is his birth name. No leper minister name change for him. And we watch Eddie's story play out. As the freak. Who just wants to play his D&D. And make edgy devil horns at the simple folk. Who just don't understand. Dungeons and Dragons and the niche. Outlier and far less popular 80s and 90s music. Of Metallica. A tweet from Netflix Geeked. Stranger Thing 4's Hellfire Club storyline, and especially the character Eddie Munson, were inspired by the documentary series Paradise Lost. Eddie is loosely modelled after writer and artist Damien Eccles, who was a member of the West Memphis Three. A tweet from Damien himself. In case anyone else is wondering, I was tremendously honoured by it, and I greatly appreciate all the new eyes and hearts it has brought to our fight. I was watching it at 3am in the morning, and when I heard the very first chords from Master of Puppets, Master of Puppets! My heart exploded. Bet it did, Damien. If only Damien had a guitar. That's what could have kept him away from stomping on a local sick dog's head trying to make the eyeball pop from the socket. Oh, and the school counsellor too. Remember her name? She was unmarried. Just in case you thought the jock 
and the demonizing of D&D felt a little bit shoehorned, just felt a little bit unrealistic. And you thought, gee, were folk really that hostile towards that niche minority that is 80s and 90s metal? You see what people so badly wanted this to be? They wanted a modern day witch trial so badly, they got one. I think I saw Paradise Lost the night it premiered on HBO in August of 96. And it just made me so mad that a modern day witch trial was being allowed to occur in America. I mean, it's not just the fact that they were making mistakes and getting the wrong people it looked like, but the fact that people seem to be reaching their decisions, even the, the jury, because of like, things like emotions and prejudice and hysteria and their anger. And they weren't using the reason or common sense, or they weren't really even applying the law. And I just think that's the wrong way for things to happen in America. Look at history. Look at hundreds of years of religious history. There have been hundreds of people killed in the name of religion. It is a motivating force. It gives people who want to do evil, want to commit murders, a reason to do what they're doing. We're slowing things down now. This next part might be a little bit mundane for a lot of folk. There's going to be a lot of reading, and I do urge you to listen and hopefully leave no doubt, or sorry, no reasonable doubt in your mind for if and when you watch these films. But I do warn you that the next couple of hours might be might be considered a bit of a slog. If you've chosen to reserve judgment until you have more pieces of the puzzle, which is more than we can say for others, good. Go for it. You'll get no censorship from me. Not to be the guy giving out homework, but find the trash HBO had the audacity to call documentaries and watch them for what they are. Because let's face it, if you've only listened to this and never heard of the case or watched the documentaries, well, it's not exactly the full context. You don't have the full story yet. I had to look through a lot of podcasts banging on about the hick towns that hate wicker and fucking meh, meh, meh. Before eventually I found this one by Roberta Glass and I'll link the one she did with another West Memphis 3 podcaster, Gary Meese. When it comes to what happened to the boys in the woods that night, when it comes to such filth, it takes a lot to find it elsewhere, but we can find it. Where? Other satanic killings. There's a Fall River cult, carnival killers, the Chicago Ripper Crew, they're some real charmers, those fellas. Rod Farrell, or Farrell, whose similarities with Damien are uncanny. But, would you look at that? Satanic cult murders get new investigation in new docuseries, Fall River. In a saga twisted by deception, biases, and the hysteria of the satanic panic, 
a new four-part documentary series re-examines decades-old cult slayings that terrified a small New England city. From the Rolling Stones, now Fall River, a new four-part docuseries executive produced by Bloomhouse Television that premiered this month on Epics and streaming on Amazon Prime re-examines this chapter of the city's history as well as the possibility that two people have been imprisoned for decades for a crime neither one committed. So it never happened, guys. It never happened. The satanic panic was just that. A panic. Overly religious, pearl-clutching hicks. I'm glad that's been cleared up. Let's travel back to the 80s and 90s. Besides the hysterical rednecks that just can't handle Metallica. What else was there? What other awareness? Real awareness, that is. Not unstoic panic. What other danger? Regarding a type of murder. A phenomenon. That use the same calling cards as each other. Would grip nations. Because it was rooted in truth. Ivan Malat would maintain his innocence until his dying breath. Imagine a documentary that not only tries to prove his innocence and overturn his convictions, but also make fun of the families of his victims. In mourning, and point the finger at them, mocking the idea of stranger danger that audiences would revel in and celebrities would jump aboard the cause and scream so loudly that the story they just make up their textbook fiction becomes the official narrative if you wish you can also read or listen to the court hearings if you choose to do so know that HBO were in the courtroom listening to the same things as you I'll show you a couple of examples now. The whole reason black clothing was brought up in the courts was to establish the teenagers' whereabouts during the evening of May 5th. The Hollingsworth sighting put Damien in a black trench coat his family confirmed on the stand he owned at the time. Distinct would be a word I'd use to describe it. Police saw him that day in a black trench coat walking past their cop car carrying what I and assuming the jury believe would end up being one of the murder weapons. It's this broom handle sort of thing. State Exhibit 53. Walks past the cop car with it. Found later at the crime scene. Confirmed by the doctor who performed the autopsies to be consistent with many of the boys' injuries, along with the serrated knife wounds, consistent with the late knife. Here's a portion of the court transcript I'll read for you, with this Dr. Peretti, who performed the autopsies, and remember, HBO were there the entire time. Davis. Doctor, in performing the autopsies on these three victims... Did you note anywhere in your report or indicate uh, 
any insect bites or mosquito bites on the three children. Peretti. There was no evidence of um, animal activity or insect bites. There is nothing written in the autopsy report to confirm this testimony. That's what they told me in the films in reference to the bite marks and Dr. Peretti. So he's in on it too. That's right, it's not just local community. Police, judges, juries, kids, parents of the victims, and Lisa, who never aired that episode, but also this autopsy guy too. He's in on it too. Where's his integrity? After all, he's a witness for the prosecution, not the defence. This impartial, independent, Brown University graduate, former Baltimore autopsy guy. Not someone the defence wanted to call to the stand themselves. Who was unintentionally critical of the coroner's incomplete on-scene report. I bet he doesn't operate like us civilised folk, far removed from the bridge to Memphis. Talking under oath about how he himself mishandled the autopsy report because he just hated goth kids so much. Peretti. Well, what I did was, normally what we do... For example, we have a gunshot case, I would write on there, I would say, well, gunshot wound to the front of the chest, I recovered a bullet in the back, and say the type of bullet it is. But this case, I do that with all cases, even with natural disease. If I do someone with a heart attack, I would write, you know, we found a heart attack, we found evidence of coronary artery disease, but because this case generated such intense media coverage, and there were rumours, a lot of rumours, people calling... There were all these circumstances. I elected on the cause of death sheet just to put the causes of death on the sheet. I did not say anything about any of the injuries. Um, I didn't tell the prosecutors. I didn't tell the police. And I didn't tell the coroner. I just kept it to myself. Over two years in editing, guys. That's a real typical scenario people go through. Uh, they first join the list is that I watched Paradise Lost. I also wore black t-shirts. I was an alienated teenager. And I think that might be the initial attraction that brings people in. But I think what's really important and that brings people together to the point where you travel cross country to come to Jonesboro, Arkansas on your week of vacation <laughs> If you choose to watch these abominations, you'll hear the details and they'll show you the details of what happened and often when you least expect it. I know I said look away during the intros, but these filthy grubs, they'll, they'll spring it on you. So if we can take away some of that initial shock and try and treat these boys with the respect and the dignity they were robbed of when it came to their final night on this earth, well, we'll do just that. And we'll see if, opposed to the dirt in the woods that night, we as adults 
can relate to the real West Memphis Three, the eight-year-old lads. Who were they? And oldest to youngest, we'll start with Chris Byers. Born June 23rd, so when it happened, he was about seven weeks out from his ninth birthday. He'd get caught out on a skateboard, belly down, rolling down a street near his home. He had to sweep the garage out for that. And doing that was the last time that his mother saw him. And here's a clip from the films where Melissa talks about how Chris was. They had a little book they wrote in at school. I still can't go through a lot of his things. It's still too painful. It's his journal. It's his journal. And uh, it was on a Wednesday. And he had written nothing on the page except just, I love my mommy. That's all he'd written on the page. And I know that if he could come to me, he would say, Mommy, it's okay. And I'm all right. And you need to be all right, too. And I still love you. And I love Daddy and I love Ryan. Now, I want you to pull yourself together, Mommy, and I want you to go ahead and live. Because I'm okay now. I'm okay. I'm all right. You don't have to worry about me. Then there's Michael Moore. He was born 27th of July. And he seems to have been the leader of the group. And when playing, he'd often pretend to be in law enforcement. And here's Todd Moore talking about his son. Michael was kind of like, um, kind of like Bart, Bart Simpson. He had a great sense of humor. He could make you laugh, no matter how depressed you was, no matter how bad things were going. Um, he always wanted everybody to be in a good mood. He, he could make anybody laugh. He'd come up with the silliest things. I damn sure miss him. And the youngest, born on November 28th, 1984, all of them, was Stevie Branch. And, and he had the spiky blonde hair. Remember, this is the 90s. And the boys were actually pointed out by a witness because of Stevie. The father driving on the highway past the boys with their bikes as they were heading into the woods that evening so when the news broke he went I believe he went to the cops and testified on the stand and remembers them because his son had spiky blonde hair like Stevie and I'm pretty sure it was him that wore his scouts uniform out, outside of scouts outside of school and we see his mum Pam wearing his scout scarf in the films the bike he rode that night had been a recent gift from his granddad, who you'll catch briefly in the films, Pam's dad. All three boys were in the second grade at Weaver Elementary. 
All three boys were part of the same Boy Scout group. All three boys would leave behind one sibling and all three boys would be 38 years old by this Christmas. If you keep listening to this, eventually you're going to hear a song and I'll read out one final quote. After that, the script is done and what's left is the state prosecutor's closing statements before the jury would deliberate. Seeing as those I won't dignify by naming deemed it unfit for their audiences. It's Miss Callie's trial first, then the trial for the other two. I have edited out stuff from it, just a lot of coughs and dialogue that's better off left out for a more streamlined version for us. Again, these closing statements were for the jury of 1994, not podcast audiences near on 30 years later and certainly not for the audience of Paradise Lost the child murders of Robin Hood Hills do you hear what I'm saying this is me creator of this podcast communicating with you the listener intended or otherwise about what I've left in what I've edited, what's omitted, and encouraging you to listen to it all for yourself. We'll call it transparency. A new word for the likes of Natalie Maines. And there's still more after that. More damning evidence left out of this recording. Again, links in the description. So if you want to hear what a weak closing statement sounds like and the truly ridiculous idea of working the innocence narrative, go listen to the defence closing statements. And you can find them on YouTube. Same place, same place I found these. Anyway, this song. Original artist, by the way. And the quote was planned out before I decided to bring attention to who the boys were and what really happened to him in the woods that night. So I was meant as this kind of uplifting revelation, well, I guess it'll hit differently now that we've established, albeit briefly, who the boys were. And between now and the song, we'll be going through official documents and transcripts, but first, but first we'll start with another Simpsons clip. One, because it's funny, and it's the last laugh we'll have. And two, well, I'll just play the clip. All right, you scrawny beanpoles. Becoming a cop is not something that happens overnight. It takes one solid weekend of training to get that badge. Forget about the badge! When do we get the freaking guns? Hey, I told you, you don't get your gun until you tell me your name. I've had it up to here with you, rebels! When it comes to true crime, it's not hard to come across many that are chomping at the bits to talk about the details. We can all be fans of the macabre, but this case and, and these boys and the maggots that did what they did, I'd rather not talk about it at all, but 
it's in the outro and I could leave it and let the lawyers tell you but again they're not talking to you and as you keep listening I'm gonna say some pretty harsh things towards these supporters but I feel like I have to because as we see in the third episode the wounds get blamed on things like turtles and it truly does feel like a lot of these supporters simply and I mean this with the best of intentions towards folks I've ripped on for the last hour and a half but in a bless your cotton socks kind of way they can't fathom that someone would commit these crimes and I know that sounds a little bit uppity but but the fact is three teenagers arrested in 1993 and released in 2011 did commit these murders in a manner so filthy and abhorrent that Eccles almost gets his wish the common ground between his supporters and anyone that looks at this case for what it is he's not the monster he wanted to be recognised for he's no more than a grub going after children with weaponry solely for the reputation and if you think that sounds like other specific teenage killers searching for notoriety committing horrendous crimes for the purpose of being known for committing horrendous crimes well you'd be right and much like Stranger Danger imagine from Dharma and Gacy to any shooter any decent human being would refuse to name imagine them walking the streets today we've got our own in Tassie did it solely for being known as the guy who did it thought he'd get a standing ovation walking into the prison got a living fuck beaten out of him instead last I heard still not allowed near other inmates for his protection he's no boogeyman he's no monster he's just a grub and thanks to these films some darling celebrities and a horde of supporters we don't have to imagine what it would be like to have folks like that walk in the streets we've got it now and they're adored because folk want so badly to relate to them you're an introverted teenager just stalk little kids do you take photos of young boys and show them to your fellow cult members they grew up in poverty they grew up in trailer parks as did their younger siblings as did millions of others around the world as did Buddy Lucas Buddy shares his dinner with his neighbours Jesse tackles Michael Moore as Michael tries to escape oh but that's all he did 
Jesse was born the day before the murders and 17 years old manipulated by the charismatic wonder and made no decisions in the lead up to May 5th three types of injuries consistent with three separate murder weapons on three different boys hogtied with three distinct knots Evening of May 5th, 1993, Jesse smells Buddy's barbecue and says if I get offered one more hot chicken meal, I'll beat the living fuck out of an eight-year-old boy. Strip him naked. Tie him up with his own shoelaces. And leave him to his fate. The same little boy whose cousins I hang around with, all premeditated. But you're right. Michael Moore was the only one who avoided genital mutilation. Well done, Jesse. We're all stoked to hear that you're quite comfortable beating the living fuck out of an eight-year-old boy. Who got the jump on you, by the way? But thank goodness you're above genital mutilation. But I wore black too. I listen to heavy metal too. I was victimised too and I don't like rednecks either. You still think you can relate? Stevie had teeth marks on his. Finally some real bite marks in Chris's manhood. Gone. Gone. Jason's work that one. Suck the blood from the penis. Put the balls in his mouth. But that's just the word of a guy from prison who just happened to point at the same guy Miss Callie had cutting Chris from the start. All three boys were hogtied. Naked. Heavy speculation and not the right words to describe the rape. Jesse's Confessions has it found on the boys clothes even after they were wrapped around sticks and jammed in the mud was a substance consistent with semen but bodies submerged in the water they're just not the same for concrete evidence of rape at least to the forensics of 1993 One of two final excerpts because we know how fond viewers of the Paradise Lost series are of reading court documents. Not from the original case, this one, but from the appeal hearing where Paradise Lost was introduced as evidence and Sanofsky had to take the stand. What's that? Due to the notoriety of Paradise Lost, cameras were excluded from the courtroom. That's what they told me. That was all they told me. Our viewers consume what they're told to consume, and consume they did. 
you also piecing together why the second one was made at all? Well, we got to go down there anyway. To Jonesboro, Arkansas. On our week of vacation, scoff. Ha ha. Who knows, a circle jerk might show up. Surely we'll find someone to talk about imaginary bite marks. We'll film it all and see what happens. I mean, it worked the first time, right? They bought it the first time. We left in Baldwin's lawyer. We left in Baldwin existing. Just being himself, let alone saying Damien might have done it. We left in Damien's boogeyman speech. I hope that buyer fella's still local, but we'll need him. Lest the viewer realises, our films are shit. There's a symbiotic relationship between those who sell garbage and those demanding to be fed garbage. Question. Do you have a clipping service that you contacted and you asked them to look for a good crime story for you? I'm still not sure how it came to pass that you were reading newspapers from Memphis, Tennessee. Answer. No, it was in the New York Times. Part of our daily routine is to, as with Brothers Keeper, remember, go watch that. We look for articles, either in the metro section or the front page of the paper, that might be interesting film subject material. It could take years to find something that sparks an interest in you that you feel you can dedicate the two or three years that you have to dedicate to make a film of this quality. This quality. Taking years. Remember, remember the third one? Under a month. Question. So this event was actually in the New York Times. Answer. It was in the metro section of the New York Times. On Sunday, June 6th, I believe. Well now. A news article. Within a transcript. New York Times Archive. June 6, 1993. Three years to the date of the release of the first film. There's that, there's that three again. Ted Turner's Turmoil. No, not interested in that. Conway Twitty, 59. Dies on tour. Country star had 50 number one songs. Not that one either. Three teenagers accused in the killings of three boys. There's the one we want. On a typical day, friends say, young Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly Jr. would watch pro wrestling on television, poke around under the hood of a car, or babysit. But others in this Mississippi River town say Mr. Miss Kelly and two buddies frightened them with hints of devil worship and fascination with the occult. On Friday, the three teenagers were charged with capital murder in the deaths of three second-grade boys. A crowd as many as 200 people outside the courthouse shouted, Murderer! 
Freak. Baby killers. We know who shouted that. And shoot them. As the teenagers were taken away. Inside the courtroom, Stephen Branch, the father of one of the victims, lunged at a defendant, screaming, I'll chase you all the way to hell. Court officers subdued Mr. Branch and let him out of the room. Stephen Branch. That's right, guys. Stevie Branch. Junior. Had been laid to rest by this stage. Stephen Branch. Lunged at one of the defendants. I'll chase you all the way to hell. Didn't seem intimidated by the West Memphis boogeyman, did he? So, where was Stephen Branch in all of these films? Terry Hobbs married the mother of Stephen Branch's son, Stevie. Gave Pam a daughter, gave Stevie a little sister. Imagine the betrayal Stephen must have felt finding out it weren't the guys everyone in the community knew it was. Tell me, where's Stephen Branch in the hunt for Terry Hobbs? Hasn't he seen the documentaries he refused to be a part of? Instead, Stephen Branch gets added to the list of parents who hate goth kids more than they hate their own child's rapist, torturer, and murderer. Mr. Miss Kelly, 17, Michael Wayne Eccles, 18, and Charles Jason Baldwin, 16, were arrested on Thursday in the deaths of the three eight-year-olds, Steve Branch, Chris Byers, and Michael Moore. They did not enter pleas at their court appearance on Friday and were ordered held without bond. I don't know what pleas are. I don't know. I don't know. Police officials. Alright, these cheeky police officials. Corrupt, intimidating, hated teenagers in black shirts. Didn't want to find the real killer. Police officials would not discuss a motive, the condition of the bodies, or any possible tie to the occult. The killing stunned this blue-collar city of around 28,000 in the shadow of Memphis. Rumours that the boys were killed and sexually mutilated as part of some ritual have persisted since the bodies were found on May 6th a day after they vanished while riding their bicycles. Neighbours described Mr Miss Kelly as an ordinary young man. Jesse's done nothing but be a boy, said Angela Baldwin, who is not related to Charles Baldwin. He looks tough, but he's sweet. Mr Baldwin's mother, who refused to give her name, described her son as a brainy child who made good grades and whose only brush with trouble had been stealing a bag of potato chips. But others found the behaviour of the three teenagers ominous. Everyone assumed they were going to end up in jail or something sooner or later. 
he said in reference to this guy. You can go read the article. Some who knew Mr. Eccles, whose nickname was Damien. Come on, New York Times. Said they were not surprised to hear he was in trouble with the law. Former schoolmates described him as an introspective loner who always wore black and never smiled. Teacher suspects cult. Jim Ferguson, a substitute teacher at Marion High School, said of Mr Eccles, He told me at school one day that whatever he can do to hurt somebody, he'd do it. He likes to rule people. He's like some wacko cult member. He'll pull you in. Oh no, not me. No way, no how. I'm not a hick like these folk. I'd have outsmarted Manson, you betcha. Go look online. If this is your first introduction, go watch his interviews with Henry Rollins, with Eddie, with Eddie Vedder. You can even watch fourth documentary, released in 2012, directed by Eccles and partnered with none other than Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson. Lisa Faulkner, who worked with Mr. Eccles at a restaurant, called him real weird. He never did talk too much, and he always stayed to himself, Miss Faulkner said. He would sit on the deep freezer and act like he was praying. He used to say stuff about worshipping the devil. Mr. Miss Kelly's father, Jesse Miss Kelly Sr., said during a break-in court on Friday that his son had told him that Mr. Eccles drank blood. <laughs> Jesse Miss Kelly Sr. Seems to have changed his tune. And that makes me wonder. Oh, how it makes me wonder. When it was, Miss Kelly Sr. changed his tune. There's another news clip where he admits his son might have been there, but didn't commit the murders. The Reverend Tommy Stacy, he could not take a barbell, pastor of Second Baptist Church, said the arrest brought a feeling of relief to the community, but he said they also troubled him because Mr Eccles and Mr Baldwin had visited his youth group. Had we tried harder, maybe none of this would have happened, Mr. Stacy said. I doubt it. So while there's a sense of relief at the same time, there is a feeling of guilt on my part. We could have reached him. And that was the article that brought these two filmmakers to Jonesboro, Arkansas. On their week of vacation! And now back to the transcript. And while there's no compelling revelation, Judge Burnett, remember Judge Burnett? Hated goth kids. Went on to be a Democrat in the Arkansas Senate and would bring in a bill that would abolish the death penalty. It didn't pass. Yet he said he'd prefer they got a retrial over the alpha plea and release, so biased filthy redneck. 
who sustained objections to irrelevance for further digging about the original documentary during the appeal hearing. But I find these answers very, very relevant. Question. You were involved, in addition to gathering information for documentary purposes, also in the business of determining whether what you had gathered may be incorporated within a movie to be sold for commercial purposes. Answer. Part of the process, yeah. Question. Also in determining what you will incorporate within your movie, you use as appropriate some degree of artistic license. Answer. Yes. Some degree. Some degree. Question. In the making of movie Paradise Lost, I presume that what we see on the film when we look at the movie, which is in evidence, includes the portions that were selected for the movie, and that there is other footage which, as we lay people say, was left on the cutting room floor, that was not chosen for inclusion in the movie. Answer, that's correct. Question, if you can tell us within a rough range of estimates, subject to some error, how many hours of footage did you have to use in making this film, which says on the box 150 minutes? Answer. We had 150 hours of material. Question. Then the selection from the 150 hours of material, the 150 minutes of material that became part of the film, you have virtually the whole trial. Answer. Correct. As well as numerous minutes or hours of film shot outside the courtroom, interviews, locations, meetings, that kind of thing. Answer. Yes. So as I say, nothing too damning. Yet. But I wore black. Pearl Jam. Yeah, mate. Yeah, you wore black. Yeah, mate. You listen to heavy metal music. Yeah, mate. You were a pissed off teenager. As if there's another variety of teenager. Wounds on the ears. Grabbing. Twisting. Consistent with rape victims. Forced to perform oral sex. Christopher Byers. The one that didn't have drowning alongside his cause of death. The other two boys, multiple injuries plus drowning. They'd have died whether they were placed in the water or not. And now you know why Chris bled out. But it didn't stop there. Chris, who bled out on the riverbank, Post-mortem trauma on his head. But you're an introvert, right? And here's what he said to the cops. Before his arrest, before police spoke to Miss Kelly. 
before autopsy results were revealed to the police, let alone any details known to the public. Before a knife, with a blade on one side and serrated teeth on the other, was conjured at the bottom of a lake behind the house of one of those arrested. Before the girls at the softball field. I don't know whether or not it was before police received a certain ominous phone call, but before anyone had the faintest idea that home box office would soon be upon them to tell the real story, before bias Judge Burnett denied prosecutors' request to hear a taped statement Baldwin gave to the HBO film crew, as well as a prosecutor's request to see HBO footage of Mark Byers speaking about the horrors he'd suffered as a teenager. Before Judge Burnett ruled that Miss Kelly is not mentally retarded and right before a failed polygraph test resulting in some very interesting comments, the police speak to a person of interest, one Damien Eccles. The boy junior parole officer, Steve Jones, named on the scene when he discovered the bodies. On May 9, 1993, only three days after the bodies were found, when Damien was not considered a suspect and only general knowledge questions were being asked. In this final excerpt, the grub formerly known as Michael Wayne Hutchison was very calm and even cold as he answered the questions concerning his background and any knowledge he had concerning the homicides. Damien stated that Steve Jones from the Juvenile Authority had been by to see him a day or two before and that Steve had told him about how the boy's testicles had been cut off and that someone had urinated in their mouths. He stated that Steve stated that could have been the reason that the bodies were placed in the water so that the urine could have been washed out. Damien had an opinion for who could have done the murders as being someone sick and that it was some type of thrill kill. He also stated that the penis was a symbol of power in his religion known as Wicca. He also stated that the number three was a sacred number in the belief. When asked about what he had heard about how the murders had occurred, he stated that they probably died of mutilation. He stated that he heard that some guy had cut them up. He heard that they were placed in the water and that they may have drowned. He stated that because of what he had heard, he believed that at least one of the boys had been cut up. He stated that one of the boys may have been cut up more than the others. Damien felt that the homicide may have been for the purpose of trying to scare someone. When asked if the water had any type of meaning in the wicker or black magic, Damien stated that water was a demon type symbolism and that all people have a demonic force. He further stated that people have control over the demonic force in them.
When asked about how he thought the person felt that had done the homicides, he stated that the person probably felt good about what he had done. And he felt good that he had the power to do what he had done. When asked why he thought the victims were so young, he stated that the younger the victim, then the more innocent the victim would be. That in turn meant that the more innocent the victim would be, the more power that the person would have got from the sacrifice. Damien went further to explain that in his Wicca religion he knew that evil done comes back three times. He stated that meant that any evil done by a person would be rewarded by the person doing the deed having three times the evil done to him in revenge. Damien stated that his favourite book of the Bible was that of Revelations because of the stories in it about what was being done by the devil and the suffering done by the people at the hands of the devil. He stated that the boys were not big, not smart and they would have been easy to control. He also felt that the killer would not have been worried about the boys screaming due to it being close to the woods and close to the expressway. He further stated that the killer probably wanted to hear the screaming. When asked what he thought the person who killed the boys was feeling now, Damien stated that the person probably thought it was funny and that he didn't care whether or not he got caught. When asked what kind of items we should be searching for, he stated that we should be looking for stones in the area, candles, a knife, and some crystals. Damien stated that he felt the murderer would be someone local and that the person would not flee from the area. Damien was asked about his sex life and he stated that he now thought sex was boring. It was noted that Damien had the tattoo of evil across his left knuckles and he stated that Jason Baldwin had the same tattoo across his knuckles. I asked Damien if he considered himself to be intelligent, at which time he stated that he thought he was very intelligent. He stated that he dropped out of school but that he was self-taught and that he was very smart and more intelligent than most people. Lieutenant Sudbury had asked questions throughout the interview that he had listed. Lieutenant Sudbury kept notes himself as to the answers that Damien had given to his questions. At this time, Damien was turned over to Detective Durham for a polygraph examination. Monsters exist. Some can lurk in the woods, waiting to ambush the trusting and blissfully naive nature of childlike minds. Other monsters you can invite into your own home to do the same thing.
I see a perfect explosion. God's ammunition dunk going up in the flames of righteousness. Satan storm in heaven, his artillery captain a fiercely grinning fool with red flayed cheeks. Damien by name, never to be Michael Hutchison again. The end is near, kiss your ass goodbye people. Time to pay up. Now is the judgment. I am the judge. Damien Eccles. You go back there and listen to those takes. Listen for the inflection, the voice. Listen for the yawns. In this case, when you became a juror, you recall standing at the first and you took an oath. And you took an oath to base your verdict solely and exclusively on the law as Judge Burnett's just given you and the evidence as it comes from this witness stand. Not speculation, not conjecture, but on the evidence as it comes from this witness stand. And that's all that anybody can ask you to do. In the judge's instruction also, he mentioned sympathy. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a case about sympathy for either side, and it's natural for you to feel sympathy. But in this case, we don't want you to feel sympathy for anybody in the case. We don't want you to allow that to affect your decision in this case. We submit to you, after you've looked objectively at the evidence in this case, at the testimony in this case, that you will return an appropriate verdict of guilty to three counts of capital murder. In this case, this defendant, in the statement before he admitted being present, he tells Detective Ridge and Inspector Gitchell that he has a phone call the day before the murders, and that he's told that Damien and Jason are going to West Memphis, and they're going to get these boys and hurt them. He also testifies that at one of these cult meetings, he mentions, that a photograph of not just some boys, but these boys, is passed around at this meeting. Now, Ms. Byers testified about her son coming in a month or so before and saying about how some strange man, all in black, had taken her picture, taken the son's picture, Chris's picture. He also stated that Damien had been watching these boys. He'd been stalking these boys. Premeditation. In looking at premeditation, the injuries themselves speak loudest. Multiple skull fractures. Chris Byers bleeds to death, and Stevie Branch and Michael Moore are drowned. The second element is that the defendant or an accomplice caused the death of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Chris Byers. The defendant himself, in this taped interview, describes this event. He describes his participation, or what he says is his participation in this event. The defendant's own expert says that the natural inclination of a defendant is to lessen his involvement in the offense, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. So he describes it for you himself, and the way he describes it, it reveals a premeditated and deliberate murder, although he tries to lessen his own involvement. And then when you go to the wrestling alibi, that was a total, total mess. You have Fred Revell, the only one, the only person who comes to the police and says, look, I think y'all may have made a mistake. He was with me, and here's why he was with me. We had gone wrestling. It was me and Jesse and one other person, I believe he said, in his first statement to the police. And I know it was that day because that's the day we paid the money. So the police, naturally, doing their job, they go out and investigate to see if he's right, that was the defendant somewhere else. And lo and behold, what do they find out? The money was paid a week before that, and they get a receipt to prove that. Well, then when Mr. Revell comes into court and testifies, the story is completely different, and he hadn't told anybody about it with law enforcement. Then you have Dennis Carter come in here and say, yeah, I went with him May the 5th. I know it was May the 5th. Sure as I'm sitting here. I said that he didn't, but that's the gist of his words. 
And then what did he tell the police? Shortly after, keep in mind, this is when it's still fresh in their memory, shortly after the arrest of the defendant. What did he tell them? He said, I didn't go wrestling then. I didn't go wrestling until after the murders had happened. Days after. Just a mess. And then finally, after witness after witness gives these confusing and conflicting stories about being wrestling or not wrestling, you have this Johnny Hamilton come in. And he testifies that, well, I'm sure it was that day. Kevin Johnson was at search and rescue. Keith Johnson went, and that was the only time he went. Keith Johnson says, yeah, I went wrestling one time, and some specific events happened, and but I don't know when it was. Keith Johnson, I think, told the truth. He didn't have any idea when it was, but yeah, he'd been wrestling with him one time. How do we know that's not true? Not about Keith Johnson, but about that it was May the 5th. When they went wrestling, they signed this document. Keith Mercier's, I hope I say that right, he came in today and testified, I only went one time. I went one time, signed the form, and it was before the murders. The defense then moves from alibi to Mr. Bojangles. Remember Mr. Bojangles? Remember that? Is there any evidence to suggest Mr. Bojangles had anything to do with this? You have a sheet with a single Negroid hair fragment. A single one. And so they pick out Mr. Bojangles to present up here as, this is, must be the person who did it. Well, let's think about that a minute. Well, there's blood. You know, he came in, he was kind of incoherent. Is there something to that? Could it have been Mr. Bojangles? Well, let's think about it. What about the crime scene? Picture in your mind the crime scene. And then picture in your mind Bojangles. The crime scene, not a drop of blood. Not one. Couldn't find one. The bodies were hidden. The kids' clothes were hidden. They were crammed down in the mud. The blood was washed off the bike. Had the scuff marks. Contrast that with Bojangles. Goes in there and he leaves blood all over the place. Down the hall, on the wall, on the floor, on the commode, all over the place. Do you really believe that a guy is going to go to the trouble of cleaning up the crime scene, hiding the kids' bodies, hiding their clothes, hiding any evidence of this crime that's taking place there, and then he's going to walk down through a field to Bojangles Restaurant, a public place, and leave blood all over the place. Give me a break. The defense in their opening claimed that there was going to be proof that this was Damien Tunnel Vision. There's no evidence of that. None. The testimony was that, yes, Damien was a suspect, but he was one of a number of suspects. Just one of a number. Let's talk about these experts that were called by the defense. 
Let's start with Mr. Holmes. What makes Mr. Holmes an expert? Actually, you think about it. Now, Mr. Holmes is a good witness as far as presentation. But when you sit back and really think about it and analyze what he said, he said the police didn't do anything wrong. He had some problems with the content of some of the questions and some of the responses. But as far as the police being coercive, he said the police didn't do anything wrong. In fact, if you'll think back and use your own memory, but do you remember Mr. Holmes saying, I would have done the same things myself? Do you remember that? Mr. Holmes' complaint is time and ligature, the knots. And in his, but in his testimony, he says, he complains because they didn't clear these things up. Well, as the testimony has been, and Mr. Holmes himself admitted, when you're interviewing somebody, you don't stop all of a sudden and start cross-examining them about something they said that may be wrong. The goal is to keep the person talking. And then he says in his testimony, well, they did go back later and clear up the time, but not the ligature. And actually, when he said that, if you will look and listen to these tapes, there's nothing said about how or what they're tied with until the second statement anyway. So they didn't clear it up after the first one because it wasn't in there. It wasn't the second one, and that was not cleared up. I want to go through some of the things that Mr. Holmes said that you looked at in determining whether you've got a coerced confession or good confession. I think that's the way you put it. He says on the problems with time and the ligature, he gave a few possible explanations. You know, he had to have been doped up, or he had to have a faulty memory, or maybe he wasn't telling the truth. But what do we have? We've got a defendant who huffed gas, smoked pot, abused alcohol, and he found significant memory deficits. The very things that the defense's own expert said could account for these problems. He also said the most important thing, and I wrote this down, that the person sounds and looks like they're telling the truth. Yet, Mr. Holmes admitted that he had formulated his opinion before he even heard the tape of the defendant. He'd had a transcript, but how do you judge how they sound if you don't hear the tape? And he had already formulated his opinion. He gave a number of factors. It's an indication of relief. It's finally out. There's some indication of relief. But what was the testimony? The testimony was that after the defendant, or about the time the defendant finally admitted that he was there when these crimes occurred, that he cried. 
Is that not an indication of relief? Like, he also says, as one of the factors, if you are wrong in a supposition in questioning the person, he will correct you. Well, let's see if you find any of that. The factors the defense's own expert says to look for. If you're wrong in a supposition, he will correct you. On page 3 of the transcript, Inspector Gitchell asks, Whose car were y'all in? Suggestible question, isn't it? Leading question, isn't it? Well, does he buy in? Does the defendant buy in to the suggestion? Does he go along with the supposition? No. He says, We walked. He corrects him. No, we didn't go in a car. We walked. Detective Ridge says, Did they take like one picture of one boy? The supposition is there's one picture of one boy. Did he go along and agree with this supposition? It's a suggestible leading question, right? No. He says they were in a group. He corrects them. No, it was not one boy in one picture. The boys were in a group. Detective Ridge, besides just playing, the little boys, had they been in the water? Did they get into the water with you all? The supposition was that the little boys had got into the water. Was that an incorrect supposition? Did he correct him? He says, No, they did not get into the water with us. He corrects him. Does the very thing that the defense's own expert says that you would do when you're confessing and not a coerced confession. He then says that in a confession, uncoerced, that you have, why in there they relate conversations with co-defendants. Do you have that in this case? Well, the proof was that before the tape, before he admitted that he was present, the tape was started, that there was a telephone call from Jason Baldwin to this defendant. And in this phone call, Damien is in the background saying something to the effect of, Tell him we're going to get some girls. And he says, Hey, I know what's going on. Do you think if the guy's going to make up something, he's going to make up dialogue of something like that? Or would Mr. Offshay say that they manipulated him into saying that? On page six, conversations. It says he took off running, went home. Then they called me, asked me how come I didn't stay. I told them I just couldn't. Again, the very things that the defense's expert says that you find in an uncoerced confession. And then page 12. You got the telephone call where he says, We've done it. We've done it. What are we going to do if somebody saw us? All conversations with co-defendants. He then says, Another factor. 
is that there's something that corroborates the confession. Now, is there anything in this case that corroborates the confession? Anything at all? Think about it. Number one, Tabitha Hollingsworth. She testifies, and her testimony was not challenged one iota. She testifies that her mother and her rest of her family are going to pick up grandmother, aunt, whatever, some relation. And on the way there, between or about Blue Beacon truck wash, you know, the woods are just to the side. Y'all know all about the crime scene. That they see, walking along the service road, Damien and his girlfriend, Dominique. And do you remember how she described the clothing? She said they were muddy. She also said that they were wearing black and that Dominique had holes in her knees. You remember that? You got your notes, refer back. Think back about that. Holes in the knees. Now, what did the defendant say about what Jason was wearing? All black, one of these shirts with the skull on it. And this in the tape about what he's wearing. And how does he describe the pants that he's wearing? He said he had holes in the knees. At night, along the service road, Dominique's got red hair. Jason Baldwin, slight, slightly built, long hair, pants with holes in the knees. That's one thing that corroborates the confession. You've got Damien. You've got him at the scene by Tabitha's testimony, and you also have the testimony of Lisa Sakavichis about the fibers. The fibers that were taken from one of the victim's clothing that were consistent with having come from this one shirt, this one shirt out of Damien's house. The testimony was that she checked fibers at the victim's houses, she checked fibers at Jason's, Damien's, the defendant's. And out of all that, one article of clothing, the fibers matched. Sure, they can say, well, those fibers, as the witness said, well, it could have come from a similar type uh, garment, from the same batch of dye, but out of all those houses, you get one garment that matches. Then, on Jason, again, you have a fiber, a fiber that matches. The only match, only match out of all the clothing in all those houses. The only match. Is that a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that the defendant describes Jason as having pants with holes in his knees and wearing all black 
And then Tabitha saying, well, I see Damien and Dominique, his girlfriend, and just so happens she's got holes in her knees. Is that a coincidence? Then we get something that corroborates it, which is another thing Mr. Holmes says about some inconsequential matter. Think the way he described it. Somebody walking by or some conversation or something. Do you remember what the defendant said in his statement about what he did with his tennis shoes and what kind of tennis shoes they were? He said that he gave them to a guy named Buddy Lucas. And he describes in his statement that they were white and blue Adidas. Detective Ridge testified that he went to Buddy Lucas's, and lo and behold, what did he get from Buddy Lucas? The white and blue Adidas. Is that a coincidence? I think not. Then you get to further corroboration, the injuries. When in discussing, and listen, you have the right to listen to those tapes as many times as y'all want to. Listen to those tapes. Don't rely on what I say they say or what Mr. Stidham or Mr. Crow says or what Mr. Davis says. You go back there and listen to those tapes. Listen for the inflection in the voice. Listen for the yawns to show the tremendous pressure he was under in this interview. But when you listen to it, what you're going to find is they ask him, says something about a boy and where was the person cut. He says, in the face. Now, in all this stuff that, that Mr. Stidham put on about this knowledge, the stuff in the paper about that they were all sexually mutilated and that kind of thing, nothing in there about a boy being cut in the face. They were beat up real bad. But nothing, nothing in there about somebody being cut in the face. He says, yes, one of them was cut in the face. And then they say, well, was there, where was another boy cut? At the bottom. Ends up, he says, in the area of the growing area. Now, is, is all of that just coincidence that he says that? Or is it, as Mr. Offshay says, that somehow these devious officers manipulated this defendant into saying things that weren't true. You've also got another factor. That's the ears. The defendant tells about the kids being grabbed by their ears. And you heard the medical examiner's testimony. <coughs> Whatever the purpose for grabbing the ears, this defendant, in his statement, says they were grabbed by their ears. And if you'll look at that, you'll see that's exactly what he says. And Inspector Gitchell testified that before he actually said it, he was even demonstrating it. And what do we have from the medical examiner? You've got damage to his ears, bruised ears, consistent with being having been grabbed. You've got three guys supposed to be involved in this, the defendant, Damien, and Jason. <coughs> How many weapons did the medical examiner say that he could put a minimum number on? Three. At least two club-type weapons. I mean, you, you don't have to be an expert to look at these photographs 
and note that those injuries were not caused by similar type things. It's obvious that these were caused by a smaller object, these by a larger object, and then you have the knife. Is it a coincidence again that we've got three weapons? He also says that, and this is in a sense corroboration of what he says in his statement, Mr. Holmes says that it's natural for a person to try to lessen their involvement. Out of all three of these kids for the defendant to associate with himself with, as far as one that he dealt with, which one did he pick? He picked Michael Moore, right? Which of the three boys didn't have any uh, torture type or mutilation to them? Michael Moore. Is that coincidence? Or did the police somehow say, well, this would be a good scenario here. We'll, we'll get him to admit to it, but we'll only have him involved with one of them that wouldn't hurt too bad. No. It's not coincidence. It's not an accident. It's not a guess. It's telling what he knew, despite his faulty memory and his gas up and alcohol abuse. And while we're talking about that, <coughs> if you recall Dr. Riker testifying about the effects of the faulty memory and the things you remember and won't remember, the things that you remember are the significant things. This was over a month later. Or, excuse me, it wasn't over. It was about a month later. Which details is he right on? The most traumatic, terrible events. Which ones is he wrong on? Two things, time and rope. Is that are those the significant things that a person with memory deficits is going to remember and have branded in their mind? I think not. In regard to time. There's an interesting statement in here by the defendant. He's saying this this noon stuff and nine o'clock in the morning and all that. Listen to this. When you get to, get back there, again, make sure that you ask to listen to the tape and get it to this spot. And you look and you'll see that nobody has said anything about, hey, it happened at night or anything like that. And you're going to hear Jesse say, well, after all of this stuff happened that night, that they done it, I went home about noon. Absolutely makes no sense at all, but you'll hear those words come out of his mouth. Then we get to Dr. Wilkins. He described the defendant as a gas huffer, heavy alcohol user, pot smoker. And then you see... the defendant throughout this trial and you ask yourself and you listen to these experts and you say who's being deceptive? Is it Inspector Gitchell and Detective Reeves when they say 
look, we just talked to the guy. We let him talk. We took his information. And when we found out and when we realized that he was identifying injuries to particular people that only a person that was there and involved knew, we knew we had our man. Now, are they the ones being deceptive? Who's being deceptive? This is the person that was there on May the 5th. The bright eyes, the clear eyes, that is the person that was there on May the 5th. Not the person that you've been observing, allowed to observe throughout this trial. Who's being deceptive in this case? Dr. Wilkins claims that this defendant is suggestible. Remember when he was asked, well, did you do some kind of test? Or was there any test that showed that? There's no basis for his opinion other than his general conclusion that he's suggestible. And remember what Dr. Reichard said about being suggestible? And how you'd need to know whether the person had a memory problem because that could affect whether they're being suggested to or they just don't remember. Remember that? Dr. Wilkins himself testified that this defendant had significant memory deficits. Then we get to Mr. Offshay, or Dr. Offshay, whichever one you prefer. But Dr. Offshay, or Mr. Offshay, he can't treat a broken arm. He can't treat your mind. He's not a licensed psychologist. You can't be licensed as a social psychologist. He's a professor and a professional witness. And I will say this. As Mr. Davis said, he's earned our respect. He is an expert witness. An expert at testifying. You observed him. Do you believe that he would have even agreed that Mr. Davis' shirt is white if he had asked him? He probably would have wanted to explain his answer. Just because you hold yourself out as an expert in something doesn't make you an expert. Just because you come in with a lot of degrees and a Pulitzer Prize. But as you heard Dr. Reichert, it may as well have been the Heisman Trophy. The Pulitzer Prize has no relevance to scientific testimony. None. He's from Berkeley, California, and he came and put on a show. And it was, from my standpoint, pretty entertaining. It may not have been too entertaining for Brent, but it was pretty entertaining to watch this expert at testifying testify. Last year, he earned $40,000 just going around testifying. And how many times could he recall ever testifying on behalf of the prosecution? Not one. And you might say, well, but the prosecution obviously wouldn't want him to come up here and testify. 
obviously wouldn't want him to come up and testify that it's a coerced confession. But, why, he says 40% of the time that he looks at these things that he finds are not coerced. Well, don't you think out of that 40% or whatever percent he said, that one time the prosecution would have said, well, they're challenging the voluntariness of the confession. Would you come testify for us? No, he only testifies for the defense. Of course, he claims that you know he doesn't make much money, but he made $40,000. $40, Charges $300 an hour, but he's never gotten it. I mean, isn't that what he said? says he charges $300 an hour, but he had never been paid that much. I think he values himself more than what he's really worth. But let's talk about the substance. And I've talked a lot about his qualifications, and, and I think y'all are acutely aware of what the proof is about that. But what he boiled down his opinion to was his problem was about the same problem that Mr. Holmes said. He just had a problem with that time. Of course, Mr. Holmes says that the time thing was cleared up in the second interview. But Mr. Alshie spends all his time talking about the time problem. Now, I want you to think, and you use your own memory. Don't, don't rely on what I say. Use your own memory. What scientific basis did he give for concluding that any of that statement was coerced? He didn't give you any. He didn't. It wasn't there. He just said it's coerced because I've reviewed this just like you could review the transcripts and listen to the tapes and say, hmm, there's a problem with time. Do you need to pay a guy $300 an hour to look and see there's a problem with time? And I don't mean to make light of it because it's a serious situation. It's a serious problem. But the defendant is the first one who mentions it happening at night. And then he reverts talking about it being in the morning. Why? Why he did that? Why he said that? I don't know. The testimony has been he's got significant memory problems, been huffing gas. I don't know. But when you analyze the way he talks in that tape and you analyze what he said, you find he's not being coerced or manipulated. He's telling what he thinks is the truth about the time. And the most significant details of the crime he gets right. He says the problem is the suggestible questions. Now, if you've got a person and whether he determined that this defendant was a suggestible person or not, I never was clear on. I never heard him say anything about that. Now, Dr. Wilkins did, but he didn't have any basis for it. Couldn't give you any basis for it. But he says the problem is the suggestible questions, which to me sounds like a leading question. Kind of like lawyers always jumping up and objecting if it's a leading question. Sounds about the same. Well, is a leading question coercive? Well, if the leading or suggestible question is coercive, you just say, well, that's not right. Like, whose car were y'all in? No, we weren't in a car. We walked. That's pretty easy to do. And the defendant did it. 
But if those questions are suggestible and the officers are manipulating this defendant, don't you think that he would be agreeing with them when they ask him a question that's leading or suggestible? And let's go through this. And let's look at these suggestible questions. Start at page four. Detective Ridge, what occurred while you were there? Any manipulation, suggestion, or leading in that question? What occurred while you were there? And he answers, he tells them, I saw Damon hit the boy real bad. Anything suggestible or leading about that? No. Have they got their clothes on when you saw them tied? That's a leading question. Suggests that they had their clothes on. He says, no. They had them off. From the photographs, it's obvious that they couldn't have been tied with their clothes on. They had to have been tied after their clothes were off. They couldn't have gotten their clothes off. So there, he doesn't buy into the suggestion, if you want to call it that, or the leading. Where was he cut at? Or where did he cut him at? He was cutting him in the face. Anything that would suggest that he was being cut in the face? Now, they said, well, he might have been pointing to his face. Ladies and gentlemen, there's not one iota of evidence that that took place. Not one. And you remember your oath. You can't base it on speculation. You can't base it on conjecture. It's got to be on evidence. And there's not any evidence that that took place. Where was he cut at after he talked about cutting him in the face? At the bottom. Well, they might say, well, he was, after there was a reference to the groin area, and he said, well, they led him into saying the groin area. Well, the officer testified that when he said bottom, he was pointing at the groin area. But even if you want to say bottom, look at the photographs of Chris Byers in his bottom and see if it's not cut. And he asked, which boy was that? Talking about the boy castrated. That boy right there. And he points at this boy. There is no evidence that there was any suggestion made to this defendant about which one of these pictures to select. And, you know, to believe that they did, there's no evidence of it. So you couldn't find that. But let's just say that you said, well, they did. You would have to conclude that these officers were so dishonest and twisted that they would pin it on an innocent person, a person they knew to be innocent. Then on page 10, has he ever had sex with them before? Talking about Damien and the little boys. Doesn't that suggest that the officers think that maybe Damien had sex with them before? And under Allshay's theory, the defendant should have said yes and then tried to figure out what they wanted him to say next. He says no. 
No. He's been watching them. No, he hadn't been having sex with them. He's been watching them. In page 11, <clears throat> talking about the picture, and this, this next thing is throughout this. It has these same three boys in it. Yes. And then Detective Rich says, you're certain of that. Ask them that on a number of occasions after they've given a response that would be a response that's consistent with the facts. You're certain of that. Now, what did... Offshade. What did he say when Mr. Davis asked him about that? You're certain of that. What does that mean? Do you think they're trying to lead him when they say that? Aren't they questioning his answer when they say that? Oh, he says that's to reinforce it. To reinforce it. These officers are skillfully manipulating the defendant, and this is to reinforce it. Well, when we get over here... In the second interview, when we're clearing things up, he gets over here, and you know that the medical examiner testified about the injury to Stevie Branch's penis, what he called a suck mark or, or whatever you want to call it. And there are some little bruises across the penis that you could conclude are teeth marks. You look at the bruises. And the officer goes in there and he asks, did anyone maybe suck theirs or something? And Jesse says, not that. I didn't see nothing. Neither one of them knew that. Again, the, the question's leading or suggestible or whatever you want to call it. Does he buy into it? No. And then the Inspector Gitchell says, you didn't see that. Jesse says, uh-uh. Gitchell again says, okay, did they pinch their penis in any way? Or were rough with it or anything like that? Jesse, I didn't see nothing like that, not rough with them. I just seen, and Gitchell says, you didn't see anyone go down on the boys the third or fourth time. Uh-uh. Gitchell, are you sure? Is Inspector Gitchell now reinforcing an answer that's inconsistent with the facts? It's obvious the defendant just didn't see this incident. Now, when it works to the defense's advantage, all she says if he asks, you're certain of that, well, that means you're reinforcing it. Skillfully reinforcing it. But when it's the other way, what is it? What is it? They're just asking questions. They're questioning, are you sure? When they ask, are you sure that Chris Byers is the one that was castrated? Are you sure? It's giving him an opportunity to say something else. And he doesn't take that opportunity then, and he doesn't take it when they're asking him about this injury to the penis. In fact, this shows directly to the contrary of what Dr. Wilkins and Offshay say about the suggestibility. It shows that he is completely able to resist suggestion. Then in this, this second case, in referring to time, when he talks about five or six, seven or eight, Inspector Gitchell is questioned about that time, and finally he says it was starting to get dark. He abandons trying to refer to it by time. 
because he has no concept of time. And he says it's starting to get dark. Did you ever see the boys in the water? Suggestible, leading that yes, they were in the water. Jesse says, yeah, down by the water. He didn't buy into it. Did you see the Moore boy? Was he right? Certainly suggests that he was, right? Leading question. The answer? No. Finally, in talking about the boys being sexually abused, Spectre Gitchell says, so they both did it to all three of the boys. Jesse, just them two, as far as I know. The purpose of all of this that I've gone through, and I hope I hadn't bored y'all too much, but Mr. Offshay testified and went over and over things that he claimed showed how suggestible this defendant was and how the police were manipulating this defendant. These are just a few examples throughout this transcript where what you might call leading questions, and by no means are all the questions leading, but some of the questions you might consider leading for the defendant, as Mr. Holmes said, he'll straighten you out. And that's what he did. He didn't just cave in and have his wheel overborne. This expert, when it's the way he wants it to be, then it's police manipulation. But if it's to the contrary, he ignores it. And the best example of that is about him saying that are you certain reinforces it. When Inspector Gitchell asks, are you certain, on a question that he was test or stating it was inconsistent with the facts. Can't have it both ways. It's either reinforcement or it's not. And then all can we went through this. Now why this very skillful expert testifier did this, I don't know. But he testified that night was not mentioned until page 18 when Detective Ridge said, the night you were in these woods. And if you'll remember, back on page 12, and you'll have that with you back there, the transcript and the tape, it was the defendant himself who first brought up night. Now why she tried to pass off to y'all that the police had introduced night? I don't know. Was he wrong, just wrong, mistaken, Not doesn't have a grasp of the facts? Or was he misrepresenting to you? He then testified in regard to <coughs> the follow-up tape that nowhere in the record does the defendant say seven or eight until, until Inspector Gitchell mentioned seven or eight. Inspector Gitchell testified and explained where he got seven or eight, and it was from the defendant's mouth. And then on page 3, again, why he did this, I don't know. All she tells you that where the transcript shows that Detective Ridge said 9 o'clock in the morning, why the transcript's wrong. That was Jesse that said that, according to Offshay. Listen to that tape. I don't believe you'll have any trouble distinguishing between Detective Ridge's voice and the defendant's voice. And it's clearly Detective Ridge saying, 
9 o'clock in the morning. Now, if these officers are going to skillfully manipulate this defendant after he says it was in the morning, why would he say 9 o'clock in the morning? Finally, in regard to Mr. Offshay, this is the same man that despite all these flowery explanations for why this occurred, it's the same man who in the state of Washington testified that a man had given a coerced confession, a wrong, untrue confession, when his two, not minor daughters, or mentally handicapped daughters, or anybody else, his two adult daughters, said that he had molested her. His wife said that it happened, and he said that it happened, and confessed to it, pled guilty, and not until the expert testifier goes and talks to him does he suddenly say, this is after more than five months of maintaining this guilt, that I'm not guilty. All these people, were all these people skillfully manipulated and coerced into saying these things? Well, the state of Washington and their courts thought not and discounted his opinion. The bottom line in this case is these officers' integrity. Inspector Gitchell and Detective Ridge, there is absolutely not one iota of evidence that they have told anything other than the truth in this courtroom. Anything other than the truth about what happened there, there is no evidence of that. There's no evidence of coercion. There's no evidence of them yelling at them. As Inspector Gitchell said, sometimes you have to do that. In this case, it was not necessary. There's no evidence of any form of coercion. This defendant knew facts that nobody else knew. Now, when you look at these documents that the defense introduced, I believe it's going to be clear that he was given information nobody else knew. The newspaper. What they printed was that all the boys had been sexually mutilated. Well, if that's the information he had, why didn't he say, well, all three of them were cut in that place instead of one and pick out the right one? Finally, finally, we get to the Bojangles defense, which we've already talked about briefly. This was a clean scene. It's not like being in a house where the evidence is contained. This is outside in the woods, but yet not a drop of blood. They might say, well, it must have happened somewhere else, and they carried him in. There's no trail of blood leading out there either. And this guy going in Bojangles leaves blood dripping all over the place. Not any blood out there because it had been wiped down. And you've got the pictures, and you can see in the pictures the condition of that bike where it had been cleaned off. You've got the most destructive thing to evidence that you can have. Water. You've got the bicycles in water. You've got the kids in water. You've got their clothes in water. And despite all of those problems, the forensic people at the crime laboratory were able to obtain 
fibers that match both Damien Echols and Jason Baldwin, despite all those problems. And they also found, and this was somewhat confusing, the testimony, at least it was for me, some of y'all may be scientists or science people, but the testimony from Dr. or Mr. DeGuglielmo, DeGuglielmo, about the DNA. Now, if you'll recall, Kermit Channel from the crime lab said that on, in his tests on a little boy's pants that he ran screening tests. He ran one screening test and it came back positive, positive for semen. He ran a second screening test, positive for semen. He looked under a microscope and <coughs> the pants were all muddy and everything and he couldn't see any sperm, but he had these two positive tests for semen. So he sent those cuttings from the pants to genetic design in North Carolina. And that was the man from North Carolina. And what did he tell you? When you boil it all down, if I can boil it down, he tells you that in his opinion, the DNA that he found from those cuttings was from sperm. Did he see any sperm? No. Because he doesn't look at things under the microscope. His are DNA tests. He says, they ask him, Mr. Stidham said, are you saying positively that there's sperm there? And he said, well, no. You can never say positively unless you look under a microscope and are able to see it. But if I had done that, it would have used up part of the sample. And we were trying to preserve the sample. But with his opinion, with the test that he ran, you'll remember there's the epithelial, what he called fraction, and the male or sperm fraction. Remember the way he was describing how you split out the two when you've got uh, more than one suspect and you split it out so you'll be able to divide them up? The epithelial fraction is the non-male fraction. If it's something other than sperm, it's going to show up in that, like blood. Well, when he got the DNA test back on the epithelial side, nothing. No DNA. On the male fraction, the sperm fraction, it was positive for DNA. And he stated that in his opinion, that this indicated the presence of sperm on those pants. So despite, not enough, not enough to connect to this defendant, but it wasn't enough to connect to anybody. It's not as if you had something that just didn't connect to this defendant. It wasn't enough to connect to anybody because there's just not enough of a sample. So despite this clean crime scene, the forensic people at the lab and through the work of the police department, they were able to come up with that corroborating factor the fibers that match Damien and Jason. And now we're about to enter the phase where really the job becomes yours, the entire job becomes yours, to judge whether or not, based solely and exclusively on the evidence that you've got before you, whether the state has met its burden of proving this defendant guilty of three counts of capital murder. I submit to you that the state has met its burden of proof. I submit to you that you should go back, deliberate, take your time, 
This is not something to rush through. Listen to those tapes and then return your verdict of guilty. Thank you. Personally, I find it repugnant with this evidence that Mr. Stidham would make such allegations. It is the first time in my career that I've had to stand up here and deal with a defense attorney claiming that his client lied. It's, it is so incredibly a reversal of roles for the defense, but what else can they do? Their client confesses to his involvement. He tells specific instances of his involvement. He describes details that only a person that is there could possibly know. And I don't care what he says. He can say there's newspaper articles or what else. But you can read in that statement that when he describes the castration of that particular boy, that is a fact that only someone who was there could know. And when he describes that the other two individuals forced them to perform oral sex on them and grabbed them by the ears, those are facts that only a person there would know. When he describes the cutting on the side of one boy's face, those are facts that only a person that was there would know, unless, unless he successfully convinces you that the police officers got up here and they're the ones that are lying, and they're the ones that are lying to you. And I hope that you have the integrity and the good sense not to buy that, because it doesn't mesh with the facts and evidence in this case, and that's what you make your decision on. Mr. Holmes, does it worry you if a defendant recants or says after he confesses, all of a sudden says, not me, I didn't do it, I lied to the police? And he says, that doesn't worry me at all. In 99% of the cases, when that occurs, the defendant is guilty. If there are admissions in that first statement that go to show his guilt that no one else could know, and I put to you that those are what we have in this case, and that is why this defendant's guilty. He said, you know, he said the state, for him to commit this murder, must think he could be in two places at one time. Well, if you listen to his alibi testimony, he was. The second issue is, and I think it's one that's crossed your mind from the time you heard the confession, is if the law requires the state to prove that this defendant acted with premeditation and deliberation with the purpose of causing the death, him or an accomplice, even under the tape, how do we find that this defendant committed capital murder? Because what he says indicates that his involvement is relatively slight. Well, examine what his statement says. He ran the Moore boy down and brought him back. At the time he did that, Damien was already beating up one of the boys, and he brings him back. Now, he'll say somewhere in that statement, he'll say, well, that's when I saw what was happening, I left. 
But that's not true. It can't be. Because in his statement, he then proceeds to detail how the boy was cut in the face. He details how the boy was castrated. And he doesn't just say he castrated him. When they say, are you sure? He said, yes. And they said, well, how did they do it? And he said, they got him down on his back. They were both on top of him. One of them was sitting on him. And then I saw the blood. Now, if his involvement was that he ran and chased the boy down and brought him back and then he took off, how was it he saw all those wounds? How was it that three weapons were used to inflict these injuries if there's only two people that are left there? And in talking about his involvement, an accomplice, he's guilty as an accomplice if he aids or agrees to aid in the participation of the offense or aids or agrees another in the commission of the offense. It's with the purpose, and when you get back there and read the instructions, purpose is defined as consciously engaging in conduct of a certain nature. If he consciously engaged in conduct that involved him in this act, then he's guilty of capital murder if that's the result. See this picture? This is the Moore boy. This defendant won't look up. He won't look at you. But this defendant's action, and you just think about it, if this defendant does not chase down Michael Moore, if he does not run through the woods and chase him down and bring him back, Michael Moore lives. Michael Moore gets to go home at night. His parents get to be with him. But because of this defendant's actions, because of what Jesse Miskelly Jr. did and what he told you about in that tape statement, Michael Moore Jr., Michael Moore doesn't go home anymore. And because if he hadn't chased him down, if Michael Moore gets away, it's only a few hundred yards to the truck stop, and certainly Michael Moore is going to report what's happening. And if Michael Moore gets away, maybe the others decide that this isn't a good thing to engage in and they get out. Maybe it's just a kidnapping and a battery. Maybe they're just seriously hurt. But ladies and gentlemen, we'll never know. Because Jesse Miskelly Jr. didn't let Michael Moore get away. He chased him down like an animal and brought him back. And as a result of his action, Michael Moore's dead, Stevie Branch is dead, Chris Byers is dead. And there's no getting around it. And you remember the words of this defendant, Jason Baldwin. And this is through Michael Carson, but I put it to you he's a credible witness. And they can say he's committed crimes, but Jason Baldwin wasn't going to be with anybody out there that wasn't in some trouble. I mean, that's a fact of life when you're in jail. But his credibility, he had no reason to lie, he had no motive to lie. And he got up here and he told you what Jason said. And it wasn't just the horrendous things that Jason had described that he did, which just happened to be consistent with the physical evidence in this case. It's what Jason said about Jesse Miskelly. Remember that? 
If Jesse and Miss Kelly hadn't screwed up, I wouldn't be out here right now. And when I get out of here, because I'm going to get off on this, when I get out of here, we're going to have a big party. Now, Mr. Ford can attribute a great deal of skill and cunning and ability to Michael Carson. That Michael Carson is capable of fabricating this story, putting all these parts in that fit, and then getting up here and telling it strictly for the purpose of becoming a big shot, and can withstand Mr. Ford. And I'd say that he probably got cross-examined as hard as anybody that Mr. Ford tried. Mr. Ford's voice got higher with him than he did with anybody, because he was excited, and he tried to hammer him. He tried to shake him. He got up there, and he went after him, and he didn't shake him an ounce. And even the person in the jail, and I think Michael Carson told you he was, he was reluctant to talk about what somebody else had said, and he wouldn't normally do it. But when he saw the parents of the victims on TV, and I believe it was the night before the trial in Corning started, when he saw that on TV, he picked up the telephone and they called me. And he told me what he knew, and he testified to it from the witness stand. And I put to you, if he was lying, if he was telling you something that wasn't true, they would have nailed him on some facts about what was going on out of the jail, who he was with, things of that nature, who was in the jail at the same time, where they were when it was said. You know, if he's going to fabricate something, he could have fabricated something a whole lot more grandiose than that. I mean, he could have come up with something that would have nailed. I mean, hey, why not go ahead and get the other defendant while you're at it if you're going to be a big shot? But he told what was accurate with the facts, and, and when you look at judging of credibility, you look at reasons and motives for fabrication. And he didn't have any. He didn't have any reason to benefit up here. If he was going to do it, he, he could have done it back a long time ago and maybe could have benefited himself, tried to gain something out of it. But his, his day in court's over with. His situation's done. There's nothing else to be gained. They want you to believe it happened somewhere else because that makes it less likely that it was someone who knew the area and was familiar with the area. This area out there, keep in mind, it's the perfect, it's the perfect area to commit this crime. Number one, it has children that play all in this vicinity. Number two, this area of the ditch, if you'll recall from the testimony, that's a big cut bank there, what I call a cut bank, where the ditch is washed it out. And you can stand in the ditch and the bank, the top of the bank's like right here. So if you're down in the bottom of that ditch on those plateaus and flat places, when the murders occurred, you not only have the benefit of the traffic and sound of the interstate highway and the seclusion of the woods around you, you're basically down in kind of a little crater or cavern when you're committing the offense. Now, they make a big deal about no blood found there. Well, like I said, there was 30 days elapsed, and all that had to have been done, and of course this was Mr. Ford when he cross-examined Dr. Freddy, gave him X, Y, and Z examples, but all that had to be done is for something to be laid on the ground when the children are placed there whether it's a piece of plastic, a piece of bisqueen, and it's folded up and carried with them when they leave the woods that night. And we don't get them for 30 more days. So, I mean, they can leave and stuff it in a drainage ditch on the way home. 
a big coat spread on the ground could have served the same purpose. It could have been anything that covered the ground, or they could have been on the very edge of the water where their legs were in the water and where they bled into the water. The other thing to keep in mind, and John didn't mention this, but remember, this knife has two cutting surfaces. It's got one here, and it's got this serrated portion back here. Now, the ripping-type injuries you see on the children are on the inside of the thighs and the back of the thighs and the inside of the buttocks. Okay? When this surface is being used to remove the genitals and the knife is worked in and they're trying to remove the genitals, this back surface is what's going to be coming in contact with the inside of the thigh and the back of the buttocks. The knife that you were shown over here, the buyer's knife, it has but one cutting surface. If they're using that knife to remove the genitals, then the back of that knife has no cutting surface at all and wouldn't leave any marks on the inside of the leg or the back of the leg. And I ask you to go back there and look at this and think, when you're looking at those photographs and where those injuries are, think of how this knife was used. Now, I know it's not pleasant, but, but think of it and then look at where those marks are and how they match up with this particular side of the blade. Of course, Mr. Ford says that's not evidence because he doesn't want to believe it because it, it incriminates his client. He would rather talk about the mud in the bottom of the sacks. He would rather claim, and I don't even know, every case they claim police ineptitude. I mean, that's, as a prosecutor, I can really write that down as something that a defense attorney is going to say. They always get up here, and if they don't have anything else to talk about, they say, well, the police bungled it up because if they had done a better job like they do on TV, we'd have all the answers. And so they claim that the police messed up. Well, this is nothing unusual except I've never heard them allege that police staged photographs. And accusations like that, why they've reached the point that they're even accusing the police of actually manufacturing things, I don't know if it's reached that point of desperation or what, but I consider that not only inaccurate but totally inappropriate based on the evidence. You look at the photographs. I mean, Mike Allen's face, when he said that about the watch, you believe that Mike Allen really had more than one watch and he came out there at a later date? One thing that he also mentioned, and he said the fiber. Not a single witness said that that fiber came from that road. Well, that's true. And you understand, I think, now that you've heard three experts in fiber testify, it's not like a fingerprint. You can't say that that fiber came from that particular garment. However, what they can say is that that fiber is microscopically similar in all characteristics to the known fibers we removed from that particular garment. Mr. Ford tries to minimize that and mislead you by saying they can't say it came from there. No, we can't. We can say it's similar in all respects, and the only garment that was found in the searches of any of these places that had a fiber that matched, and you've seen those graphs, how well it matches. They run perfectly parallel, contrary to what Mr. Lynch, the guy who can't flatten one, says. But those fibers match that garment, and it's one fiber. But it's microscopically similar in all respects to what came off that robe, and that robe came from Jason Baldwin's house. 
They make a big deal about there's no evidence at the scene. But think about it a minute. It's not that there's no evidence connecting their client. Because what evidence was found out there connects to one of these two, for the most part. What they want you to do is say there's no evidence. But there's no evidence out there that points to anybody else. There's no evidence that points the finger. If someone else did it, and that's their argument, there's just not a whole lot of evidence out there that connects our client. But if someone else had committed the crime, then you'd see fibers out there that didn't match, didn't come back to one of these people. You'd see evidence out there that didn't match to either one of these. You'd see evidence that didn't connect. And you don't have that. There's just a sparsity of evidence. Somebody did a good job of cleaning it up. The same person who made sure they punched the clothes down in the mud so they wouldn't float up is the same person who cleaned that area. And they did a dang good job of it. And they removed most of the evidence. But there's a few things they didn't get. Mr. Ford is real concerned about the question as to time of death. And I don't know what got into Dr. Peretti. I swear I do not have any idea what the man, what caused him to come up with that time range. But you've heard in the textbooks, you've heard Dr. Jennings, even Dr. Peretti leading up to it, it's like Dr. Jennings said, you can't give an opinion, you can't give an opinion, you can't give an opinion. Okay, Mr. Ford, I guess I'll throw this time range out. And it's just, it is absolutely as inaccurate and doesn't have anything to do, based on lividity alone, that time range has no more, that is no more basis for an estimate as to time of death. It's like you said, it's putting the roof on without the foundation. The time of death, the only accurate range is from the last time they were seen until the bodies were discovered. And this isn't a TV show. That's as close with these factors as we can get. And they said, well, you know, they didn't get all the information we need. But had they gotten a rectal temperature, they would have destroyed evidence possibly of sexual assault. Had they removed the bindings to determine the degree of rigor, they would have possibly destroyed evidence that had to do with those bindings. I remember there was a piece of tissue that was found in one. So, I mean, they had, their decision to do what they did was based on a rational, logical alternative of we're going to give up some things to obtain others. And that's what they did. Mr. Ford talks about guilt by association in regard to Jason. And remember Dr. Griffiths, and I'm telling you, this satanic or occult motive thing is kind of a foreign concept to me. But when you've got people that are doing what was done to these three little boys, I mean, you've got the normal motives for human conduct don't apply. There's something strange going on that causes people to do this. I mean, you've got some weird people. And when you've got a set of beliefs, when you've got people out there that are following a particular set of beliefs that include human sacrifice, and it's evidenced in the books. I mean, he can say, you know, I don't do it as a custom. But, I mean, this guy's more, his mother said it was a phase he went through. I think he said he dabbled in it. I mean, you can judge him from the witness stand. The guy's as cool as a cucumber. He is nearly emotionless. And what he has done in terms of the satanic stuff is a whole lot more than just dabbling or looking into it for purposes of an intellectual exercise. 
I mean, the guy's handwritten incantations regarding sacrifice, letting the blood flow, all that sort of thing. I mean, that is indication of someone that's got some rather unusual belief system. Dr. Griffiths mentioned, he said, you oftentimes see that you've got one kind of charismatic guy that's heading the group. And he said this is oftentimes with these offshoots that aren't formalized occult or satanic groups, but they're just kind of offshoot groups that are kind of self-styled occultists. And you usually have one guy that's kind of the charismatic leader, and then you have some followers. Well, contrary to what Mr. Echols told you from the stand, I don't think he's the introvert that he says. You see at the ballpark, as Mr. Fogelman pointed out, he has the crowd of people around him. They're younger people, 16-year-olds like Jason Baldwin, who's his best friend, and the testimony was they spent three to four hours together nearly every day, that he would walk across town nearly every day to go out to the trailer park to be with his best friend Jason. And you see that usually when you see people that associate that frequently, there's some sort of tie. Play basketball together. They're in athletics together. They go to school together. They have some common interest that binds them so that they spend that much time together. And I put to you that the leader in this case is Damien Echols. And the follower, one of the followers in this case, is Jason Baldwin. And it is so, like Mr. Fogelman said, serial killers don't work in packs. Psychotics don't run in packs. When you have multiple people involved in a murder like this, there's got to be some thread that connects them, that holds those people together so they act together in a focused effort. And I put to you, as bizarre as it may seem to you, and as unfamiliar as it may seem, this occult set of beliefs and the beliefs that Damien had and that his best friend Jason was exposed to all the time, that those are the set of beliefs that were the motive or the basis for causing this bizarre murder. And Mr. Ford might not like to accept that. He may make fun of Dr. Griffiths. But in this case, I think the shoe fits. And the other more normal motives for human actions and the actions we find here just don't seem to cut it in this case because you've got something this bizarre and this unusual. And like John said, we didn't make this stuff up. We didn't put the writings in the book, all that. That's stuff that was produced by Damien Echols. And if that indicates, and Mr. Price will say each little object doesn't indicate he's involved, but it indicates more than just a passing interest. It's somebody, when their dress changes, their ideas change, their religious beliefs change to that extent, and it's that type of religious beliefs, then it's not a foreign idea to think that that has something to do with their motivations or motivating their actions and affecting their actions. When Damien was telling us, remember about the interview? And he's talking about what Officer Ridge asked him. And he said, you know, I asked him, I said, well, Damien, I said, you know, you told the officer that whoever did it is probably laughing at the police. Yeah, I said that. 
Well, why do you think that? Well, common sense would tell you that. I thought at that time, I thought, well, that's a tad strange. You know, to me, common sense, but maybe I just hadn't thought about it. And then he started reeling off these things, like the person, it would have happened out in the woods because they couldn't hear him scream, but the person who did it would have really liked to have heard him scream, really enjoy hearing him scream. Why do you think that? Well, common sense would tell you that. I thought, well, okay. And so he went through and he reeled off a number of things, and he kept saying, just looking real flat, unemotional, common sense would tell you that. And I know when I got home that night, it started, when we're dealing with somebody, whoever committed this crime has to be one warped individual. And the person who talks in terms of the person who did this would have liked to have heard him scream. The person who did this wouldn't mind if they got caught. Then that is a mind, you know, that is a frame of mind that fits the person who committed this crime. And it fits the guy who was out there at 930 at night. And it's kind of funny, you know, at one point, they want to believe Narlene, but they don't want to believe Narlene. I mean, you can take them a lot of ways, but I don't think Narlene lied to you when she said she saw Damien out there. And once you accept that, then why in the world is Damien and the rest of his group lying to cover him where he was on the field? What difference does it make? Why didn't he get up here and level with us? Well, heck, I was going down to Lowe's Truck Stop on the field. Put Dominique up here, let her tell you what they were doing. But if Anthony and Narlene are telling you the truth, and, you know, you heard her say that about getting him in the car. She wasn't going to have him in the car because she wouldn't let her kids sit on his lap. She knew who was out there. I mean, Damien himself admits what a distinctive-looking character he is. I mean, you wouldn't drive by and miss him with your bright lights on at night if you knew who he was. And she knew who was out there. And if he's out there, then he's lying to you. And if he's lying to you, his whole family's lying to you. And the question I've got for you, if they're lying to you about all that, why? Why? Have they got something to hide? I put it to you, they do. Also, remember Damien saying, and I think this is a real, real coincidence, and you all can play a little detective on your own when you go back here. Remember this book that just comes from the library? See all this stain on the back of it? You all go back there and look at that and kind of tilt it in the light and look at it and see if that isn't blue wax to you. If that doesn't look like some blue wax to you. You know, you can run your finger on it, but it reflects. It's got kind of shiny surface to it. You remember old Damien telling us that one of those, that whoever was doing this would have probably, if it was satanic involved, probably been some candles out there. Well, we've got one of the boy's shirts that had that blue wax on his shirt. And old Damien will tell you, well, those red marks in this book, you know, those must have been in the library before I got it. But is this just going to be another one of those coincidences? You know, Damien's out there at 930. Damien tells two people who don't know him from Adam. They overhear him say he committed the murder. Their mother comes into court and testifies under oath that that's what their daughter said. Arlene and, and Anthony tell you that. And is this just another coincidence that we've got blue candle wax on the shirt of one of the victims? And we've got blue candle wax on this book involving and dealing with the occult. You go back there and play Play your own little examination with that. We've got
got to convince you so that you have that conviction in your stomach when you go back there and look at that evidence. And I put to you, we've done that in this case, that the defendants are guilty of capital murder. Couldn't be a worse capital murder ever committed in this state that I can be aware of. I mean, it's premeditated, deliberate. It's the worst possible kind of killing you can have. And when you go back there, sort through that evidence, go through it carefully, look at this knife, look at those photos, look at all the evidence and piece it together. And when you do, you're going to find that these defendants are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And you'll feel, you can feel good. You don't have to feel guilty, which is what defense attorneys want you to do. You can feel good in returning a verdict of guilty once you've gone through that evidence and made that determination that there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Thank you. I ask you when you go back there, because the aggravating factor that you must find for the state and that's listed is the cruel and depraved manner in which they were killed. And I ask you to go back there and look at that photograph of Michael Moore and look at what was done to him and then determine if that is an appropriate circumstance to render the death penalty. And I ask you to look at the picture of Stevie Branch and look at what was done to him, the torture that that child went through, and I ask you to ask yourself if there was ever an appropriate circumstance to return the death penalty, what would it be? Is this it? And I ask you to look what happened to Chris Byers. And if that is an appropriate circumstance, and I put to you, and it's your decision and you're the moral judgment of this community, but I put to you that when you look at those photographs, that the injuries to those children, if there is ever, if there is ever an appropriate case for the death penalty in the state of Arkansas, you've got it in your hands right now. When you go back there and they've talked about mitigating factors, and I acknowledge, I agree, you'll see a list of them, and there are some mitigating factors that you will find. You'll find them there. And you'll make one decision. Do the mitigating factors in this case, how do they compare? And the instructions tell you what you weigh and how much you weigh, but do the aggravating factors beyond a reasonable doubt outweigh any mitigating factors that you find in each instance? And I put to you, in this case, if there ever is one, the cruel and depraved manner in which these children were killed, the age of the children that were killed, the manner in which they were killed, that there will never be a case with facts appropriate for finding that aggravating circumstance like you have here. I ask you to look at that. I know it will be a very tough decision. I want to thank you for your service here because from the day you walked in this courtroom, and I think all the attorneys will agree, this case is going to mark everybody that's been involved with it for life. It will affect you. But I ask that you go back there, look at this, do what you told me you would do under the appropriate circumstances, return a verdict of death. We, the jury, find Damien Echols guilty of capital murder in the death of Stevie Branch. 
We, the jury, find Damian Echols guilty of capital murder and the death of Chris Byers. We, the jury, find Damian Echols guilty of capital murder and the death of Michael Moore. We, the jury, find Jason Baldwin guilty of capital murder and the death of Chris Byers. We, the jury, find Jason Baldwin guilty of capital murder and the death of Stevie Branch. We, the jury, find Jason Baldwin guilty of capital murder and the death of Michael Moore.